Please bring strange things. Please come bringing new things. Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps, and the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing, and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us. Return to us. Be always coming home. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If this is your first time joining us, you know, welcome. This is like the world's smallest podcast about big books. That's our whole kind of gimmick. We read a book that's over 500 pages or so, and then we kind of talk about it to make sense of it. It's a way to keep each other accountable. And I think, um, as always, it was necessary for this project, our latest project, which is the first book I've read, which comes with a link to uh, Bandcamp. What is yes. it, Bandcamp? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the original printing had a cassette bundled with it. Like, not as a separate project you could spend extra money for, but my understanding was that if you bought this book in 1985, it was a book with a cassette. That is at least my yeah. understanding. Yeah, and so uh, Library of America, you know, Classics reissued it, and in the little front they have a little uh, note about where you can find the music online. Um, the book is Ursula K. Le Guin's Always Coming Home, sort of a... Uh, a world-building exercise taken to like a maximalist, you know, but spiritual um, level. So yeah, I, yeah, it was pretty a crazy book, but I think you read this book pretty quickly. I didn't read it as quickly as you did, but I also think I read it in very, you know, uh, you know, efficient chunks. <laughs> so I think it's it's maybe a really good book to do that with, and a really terrible to do, book to do that with. <laughs> but it was a strange book, right? Yeah, it's one of the weirder books I've read, not necessarily in the sense that like it's disorienting or you come away from it being like, whoa, man, like it's not a trippy book, but right. it is structurally unusual. I'm not saying it's the only book that's written like this. That's probably not true, but it's the only one I can think of off the cuff. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely out there. Um, people, I mean, some, I, I will say just for the record. People sometimes refer to this as Ursula K. Le Guin's masterpiece. Uh, not everyone, but that's kind of in the air around this book. And I think that usually happens when an author has publicly said they've worked on it <laughs> in a way that like, maybe they consider it their masterpiece, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, of course, it, it is probably her, I, I don't know her, um, you know, I don't know her, her list of works exhaustively, but it is from what I can tell, it's a departure from mostly how she writes. Like she's always in a certain documentary style, but this sort of is a collection of fragments and a, a structural experiment in a way that most of her stuff, if not all of her stuff is not. So I do think, you know, whenever it's weird, people are like, well, is it her masterpiece? Because I don't know what else to say about it. Um, <laughs> how else do I situate this within her corpus <laughs> yeah. if it's not the best thing she ever wrote? Yeah. No, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> um, so, I, so I thought, you know, this is always a pretty loose podcast, but I thought we would, 
if you don't know who Ursula K. Le Guin is, um, we, we'll tell you a little bit about her, and then I'm going to make Bill uh, try and summarize this book, which is my kind of my favorite part of every podcast, is to see what Bill comes up with for these <laughs> literally, like, the books are too long to summarize. That's the whole point of them, you know? Um, but yeah, so Ursula K. Le Guin is, of course, um, a giant of science fiction. I do think, you know, she's and she was one of the people in the 70s and 80s, if you read her essays, she's been big on the kind of uselessness of distinguishing literary fiction from genre fiction unless you're just talking about sort of tropes you know but usually when you talk about it as like a code for quality she hates that and she hates that because she's a very good writer and i think the longer that we get away from the 20th century um she actually will probably be one of the american writers who stands out who like kind of survives the test of time on a popular level but also more and more on a critical level um she was born in like 1929 i think yeah 1929 yep. she was she's one of these authors who just um, she lived a long time. She died in 2018. Um, I've read some of her stuff before. I think you have too, Bill. She's most famous for like the Hainish cycle, which kind of is, you know, this series of books that are interrelated, but not actually sequels to each other about the distant future and so forth and so on. Um, she's also famous, of course, for uh, A Wizard of Earthsea, which that one you've definitely read, right, Bill? Yeah, so I read that actually not very long ago, that that trilogy. So she wrote one or two other books in the Earthsea universe, but there was an original trilogy. I read that in December, uh, actually, like all on New Year's Eve. Uh, so I did that very recently. Uh, they, you're not going to know the Hainish cycle by its name. Nobody calls it that, except when they're being specific. You've heard of the two books, at, two of the main books in there as The Left Hand of Darkness, uh, which is the first well, she, she was, for that book, boy, I'm really saying this very well, aren't I? Very coherent. For that book, <laughs> she became the first woman to win a Hugo for Best Novel. There we go. Right, right. Uh, she also won the Nebula. I can't remember if she was the first woman to win a Nebula for that or not. Uh, and the other one that you've definitely heard of is The Dispossessed. The other thing by Ursula K. Le Guin you've heard of for sure is a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Uh, that's, those are the ones, if you've heard of her at all, you've definitely heard of that. Yeah, well, and I and I would um I just want to put it out there because the dispossessed and the left hand of darkness they're they're taught there's you know people love them for lots of reasons and one of those reasons is that they're they're very intelligent about discussing political systems and I and they're not just intelligent as far as the systems involved so like the dispossessed is about basically anarchism right what would an actual kind of a certain type of anarchist society look like and what would it look like to take someone from that society who knew it as a natural thing and put them in a capitalist society everything's exaggerated of course but so her her actual political kind of sensibility is very i think intelligent but for me at least and part of this is the science fiction element she is one of the few writers who like sets out to write about politics you know in a very one-to-one -one way a lot of times but she still writes really good books like the book and the stories and the characters and the whatever, all the stuff that matters most to literature. She still seems to get right in a way that it doesn't matter that, you know, she's often dealing with these very like clear essay topics. And I think most people can't do that to be honest. Um, so I don't know. So if you've ever, if you're ever nervous about picking her up because you hear her talked about through just this lens of, you know, political insight, I, I would also say you know, her the literary side is not, you know, ignored. She goes full bore on both, on both parts. Um, well, and I would say not just not ignored. I think she's probably one of the best sort of literary science fiction writers, right? In terms of her ability to 
craft sentences and do yeah. all the clever things we care about in literary fiction. I say we. I don't live there. I just visit it sometimes. But <laughs> Oh, Bill. I don't know, Bill. You might live there more and more, yeah. you know? Never. It's <laughs> like anyone, anyone, anyone who's read War and Peace, you know? I don't know. Ah, like it's not. Everyone's read War and Peace. That's nothing. <laughs> if we're, if we're going to do that, something we read in no the... One's... <laughs> no one's finished War and Peace. They're all lying. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. But um, um, no, anyway, I would say like anyway. something like The Unconsoled would be a better example of why I, I would have to be because of this. Podcast. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, The you Unconsoled know. is pretty pretty good deep cut. <laughs> um, and anyway, so yeah, so she and I agree. She is really good. I, I did have a professor a professor in college one time. Um, you know, we were talking about gender stuff and um of course i brought up left hand of darkness because it's a book about gender basically however wrong or right it gets stuff um it's gotten some flack you know about heteronormative themes but um but yeah the the professor was like uh oh yeah i like her at the level of ideas not at the level of sentence (laughs) and i was like oh i I, I liked her at the level of sentence act. You know, like, I, I yeah, didn't I think really you're wrong about say. that there, Doc. I, like, but I do <laughs> think that was, yeah, I do think, but I, but I think she, like a lot of science fiction writers, she, there's, a, you know, even when she's being very experimental, there is a clarity that she cares about. And I think sometimes that's where people get away with, like, dismissing her or, or, or others as being just, like, another kind of, like, um, solid prose, good ideas. It's because, like, clarity matters, you know, um, in a way that sometimes I think lit folk get away from. Anyway, that's we're off in the weeds already about nothing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Bill, do you want to try and sum up this book, you know, for, for me? <laughs> yeah, let me give it a shot. <laughs> what did I just read? <laughs> so um, Always Coming Home was originally published in 1985. Uh, the original text is about 600 pages long. It is... <laughs> so it is a collection of poems, texts, essays, and like autobiographical stuff all coming from this fictional society, the Kesh, who live in the Napa Valley, what we now call the Napa Valley, and what at the time she's writing is called the Valley of Na, some umpteen thousands of years into the future. It's never clear exactly how far, but after some sort of collection of possibly nuclear or ecological catastrophes has sort of destroyed all of our societies to the point where they're hard to remember, right? Um, And they live this sort of... A very different kind of life than what we do in the United States here in 1985 or 2022, right? They're uh, uh, clearly heavily patterned on... Well, she says that she's trying to learn a lot from, like, the Native American cultures that lived there, but they're not exactly... They don't live very much like Native American people, except in certain philosophical ways, right? So they have connections to technology, like they they have immunizations, they have guns, they have... um, At one point, somebody builds an airplane. Like, they have access to a lot of technology. They're not Luddites, exactly. But they still live a a far more low-tech existence than you or I do, partly because they're not an industrial society. Um, I'm not going to try to summarize their whole political structure here, because that's the book. And also, they don't have a political structure, exactly. It's an anarchist utopia, right? Um, But, uh, so what the text is, is after some brief notes, there is the beginning of a three-part sort of novella called Stone Telling, which is the name of the woman who's telling the story. She talks about growing up in her Kesh uh, village in Shinshan and then going away to join her father, who is a general or commander of a neighboring society, which is trying to become an empire, right? So she, yeah. she leaves home, goes to this sort of imperial capital, uh, realizes it sucks there, <laughs> and then finally goes home. Uh, and her... her uh, one of the things we learn about the Kesh is they have, I think, at least three different names, like a name at childhood, a name throughout their sort of 
adulthood and then a last name. Last name, not in the sense of a surname, but in the sense of your last name, right? One you get, yeah. not necessarily when you're dying, but towards the end of your life. And her middle, na- her, her middle name, her adult name is uh, Woman Coming Home, right? Because that's sort of, she's one of these people, one of the few people in the cache who like left and then came back, right? So through this novella, we see not only a picture of life in the valley, but also of how it's differentiated from this other society, which is sort of eating itself in an attempt to become imperial. But that's only, I want to say, about a fourth of the original text. Um, It's about 150 pages, I think. The other 450 pages are poems, uh, short stories told (laughs) aloud within the society, uh, a few short essays about, like, life in the cache. Most of it's primary texts, right? Um... I mean, again, none of these are real people, right? But they're presented as primary texts. Um, So poems, uh, short stories, bits of biography, a portion of a novel, um, and uh, some plays, you know, uh, all kinds of little stuff, some other brief little texts. And then also, most interestingly, four or five short sections. I think the longest one's maybe five pages long all marked as something like Pandora worrying about what she was doing does something, right? Or, And Pandora is, we'll talk about this more, I think pretty clearly just intended to be Ursula K. Le Guin herself, right? Yeah. Coming in directly, from, yeah. from outside, either having sort of a thought as she's looking at something in our time, worrying about why she's writing this project, or in one, uh, I think probably the best section, having a conversation with an archivist, like a librarian of the Kesh. Now, again, obviously this is not a, this is not a, like, it sits uncomfortably with the text because it's very clearly just the author talking to her characters, right? And we're going to have to talk about that in a lot more detail. Uh, and then at the end of it, there's a section called The Back of the Book, which is about 130 pages, 140 pages of more traditional appendices, right? Like like a more anthropological text. You know, here's some stuff about their musical instruments, and here's some stuff about their maps, and here's some information about some of the big ceremonies they have, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Then our copy, the copy of the Library of America printing, has another 200 pages, <laughs> which starts with about uh, 50, 60 pages of sort of deleted scenes from the novel. It's not clear to me when she actually wrote them, right? But it's sort of more of the same, right? Uh, they, it's most of the rest of that novel I talked about, the Kesh novel within the text. Um, and then it's also some more poetry and so on. And then it's about 100 pages of essays that Ursula K. Le Guin wrote or panels she spoke on either directly about this text or about the sorts of things that she was thinking about when she wrote this text. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, that's what's so funny is there's like a there's a fake critical ending, right? And then there's an actual, actual. critical ending <laughs> in our copy. But there's yeah. also but there's also critical insertions throughout the actual novelistic project because yeah, I think Pandora is just directly her, and so like there's also there's there's like there's this editor personality which she takes on, which seems to be like a fictional construction more or less, and then there's actually just literally her <laughs> talking about writing this book. <laughs> In the middle um, of the book. In the middle um, of the book, yeah. There's lot, lots of layers that she, she really leans into. So it's a, it's a difficult book to talk about. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to fight about this because I don't care. But, like, calling it a novel, I think, at least needs to come with an asterisk at the end, right? Like, I, I and again, I don't care about what the boundaries of a novel are. But it's certainly very different from every other book I've ever read that calls itself a novel, right? Um, structurally. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's really good. It is a difficult book to talk about. We'll see how we do. I think that's my summary, Joel. Uh, yeah, no, that was great, man. I, I, I mean, I think it's definitely. I mean, I, honestly, because because of the like constri- constrictions of language, like 
an experimental novel, what else could we call it? You know? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I, I'm fine with the but, title, but <laughs> no, no, but it is, it is, it, it doesn't. Well, I think you had the experience. You told me off the podcast that like, um, you didn't have a lot of like foreknowledge of what it was going to be going in. Right. Right. And so I, I, and I, and I actually had more foreknowledge and it still kind of walloped me with how extreme the experiment was. Right. It's literally fragments that are presented in like in a documentary style <laughs> um, for, yeah, like 600 pages of the original text. And it, it's, good but it is it is um it is bizarre okay so because it's a bizarre book and because i think this book is like all of her books it really is operating at the level of ideas like there is good characters you know, sorry there are good characters and there are actual plot lines and there's some things that you know she, she kind of screws it all up with her fragmentation but you know she's still dealing in a a fictional mode as far as creating energy or conflict or whatever else but it's definitely a book that is explicitly saying, here's the world in 1985, um, which I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like how it is. <laughs> and I think she has two projects in mind. One is a very classic project of sci-fi, which I want to deal with first, which is like, how do we get outside of our current I'm going to use actually a phrase that you hate from Charles Taylor. How do we get outside of our social imaginary? <laughs> Where imaginary is a noun, you know? I, I do kind of hate like, that, yeah. <laughs> I know. It's kind of like It's kind of like the landscape of possible things that we can think, right? So we can't almost see the be- beyond the horizon of our social imaginary to a different kind of world. Um, you could put it in different terms, like what seems natural about our culture or what seems natural about the world that is actually um, formed by culture. I think that this book is partly a project based on how do I get outside of that mode, almost sort of a, an invisible determinism. And in the back of the book, she talks about a determinism that's based on technology, she thinks. Like, how do I get outside of that so we can both view our society better and also just view humanity better, maybe like, in a different context? But for me, like, this is, kind of sort of, this is a sort of a classic um, philosophical idea, right? How do we put ourselves in a mindset that can reflect on the current world as it is from a place of objectivity? Like, how do you step outside the current culture to talk about the culture? It's almost impossible. Um, there's this C.S. Lewis quote that's something like, let me pull it up. It's, uh, he says, um, all contemporary writers share to some extent the contemporary outlook, even those like myself who seem opposed to it. Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming without question a good deal, which we should now absolutely deny. And the easy example with this is like various religious wars, right? Um, People on either side think that they are like diametrically opposed, (laughs) but they both believe that Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that's probably a stronger connection (laughs) than they realize, um, going on. And so anyway, so one way you hear about this in philosophy is, you know, one way to like unmask our cultural priors is you have that kind of famous the quip about like, imagine a Martian scientist comes to Earth. Um, Noam Chomsky uses this, right? Like imagine a Martian scientist comes to Earth and reviews all of the human languages. Well, the Martian would think that they are dialects of a single universal human grammar. So, you know, Noam Chomsky wants to basically say, you think these languages are so different, you know, Navajo and Mandarin, but actually, from a certain perspective, they're the same, um, or at least similar. And so I think, I, I think the Martin's Martian scientist thing gives us a clue about some of the appeal of sci-fi, which I apologize for this audio essay that I'm going into, but it's, <laughs> this is what the book does to you. I think the book puts you in this mindset. Um, Adam Roberts recently kind of quoted Samuel Delaney um, 
who says that the aims of sci-fi is to represent the world instead of reproducing it. And Ursula K. Le Guin talks about that in a similar way about a lot of her projects. That, you know, Left Hand of Darkness, she wrote it about, you know, a society where basically um, people are like gender neutral and depending on their sexual uh, reaction to other people, they sort of, I can't remember all the language. If you do, let me know. But like, you know, they sort of shift into female or shift into male modes. Um, you know, yeah, it's called going into Kemmer. <laughs> they, they start yes, out going to Kemmer. I forget yeah. the word for being not in Kemmer, but you know, there's a, you, you, on your average Tuesday, you're not really a man or a woman. Right. But then under certain circumstances, reacting to both your own sort of hormonal changes and also the hormones, people around you, you shift into being, male or female when you go into Kemmer, which is that's sort of like going into heat, but it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. It's a heck of a it, book. <laughs> it is a really good book. And I, and I, but I, I, so I think, you know, um, she talked about it in an essay at one point, which I couldn't find where she's of course not suggesting that that's the future of humanity. She's suggesting that that's a, uh, that's in some ways representative of a reality we currently have in our culture and our people and in our interactions with others. And so this book, I think, um, you know, it takes that to the, the maximal level. But um, so, but part of what I, I think a lot of different sci-fi does, that when it's about the future, futuristic sci-fi is interested in representing the world as it is right now, right? So you, ha and like, you know, that's not true of some projects. Like I, I love this quote from Phil Chrisman, um, an SAS we both like, who, um, you know, he talks about um, Kim Stanley Robinson, <laughs> that mm -hmm. there's um, some stuff he writes, Robinson, that you want to like, you know, feels like, how do I get this in the hands of my congressman, right? Because yeah. <laughs> Robinson, Robinson's actually trying to solve climate change, you know, like it's not a project about like how we are right now culturally. He's trying to solve a problem 20 years from now, you know, kind of in a hard science way. But I think basically, in my experience at least, and you don't have to agree with this, but you definitely should, everyone who's listening in, Bill. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you you know, the future is used to talk about the present um, because it can kind of re-weird what feels natural or maybe kind of re-artifice what feels natural, right? Um, you see it in all kinds of examples, which I won't go into. But what I've always thought is that this isn't totally true, but usually the future, the future never feels quite future to me. Um, most futures that I read in a book, they feel like fun projections or fun, you know, imaginary worlds, but they don't feel like the future. And so um, an example of, you know, where they kind of, you know, represent the present, um, which is also a little prophetic, like Fahrenheit 451 is really about the idiocy of TV, right? It's not actually yeah. about book burning as much. It's more about like the people who sit in rooms and watch all these screens. Well, we haven't actually experienced that, although of course screens have gotten more and more addictive on based on a short attention span. Um, but that's still about the present. That doesn't give me an idea of like what 2100 will look like, right? That's still an idea about now. And so I was just curious, um, this book makes the future the past, arguably. Yeah. Um, this book's future is very consciously drawing on various historical realities, some European, I think a lot Native American. And so I was curious, do, do you think, does she disrupt the usual future to present symbolic current? Like, is the future in this book actually about the future and not the present? Yeah, so I do think it is an attempt to imagine a sort of sustainable future, which is a word she would not use because it's anachronistic, right? But I think she would probably okay that, right? It's like, it's partly an attempt to see, like, what would we actually have to do to have a society that uh, functions in the future, right? When we've right. lost the ability to do all of our sort of terrible industrial things, right? 
because we've burnt out a lot of our natural resources and there are fewer of us, um, you know, the <laughs> repeatedly one of the, one of the things that structures this society is that they, ha- and she doesn't actually talk about it too much in the main text, although she does some, but she talks about it a lot in the back of the book, right? Uh, there's a lot of genetic problems, right? For the, the cash right. and all the other people yeah. due to environmental damage. Um, and again, whether that's radiation or poisoning or what, like there are whole diseases that we don't have that like many, many, many people have either at birth. There's a lot of stillbirths in this society um, or a lot of people develop it later on. Right. And it's basically genetic damage. Right. Um, and so a lot of it is it's, that sort of shapes their whole society. Right. Like it's hard to have very many children. Right. And so that gets sort of reinforced by various social taboos. And so I think part of the project is an attempt to actually predict, like, what would we actually have to do to have a society that functioned, right? And so in that sense, I think it feels more of an actual sort of about the future, right? Because it's not just about what we're up to now. It is partly, right? But it's mm-hmm. also about, like, what, what could this actually look like, which is a little bit different from a lot of projects, particularly sort of quasi-utopian projects, which this book definitely is, right? Like, one of the things I, I'm not sure you can draw a very straight line from how you would get to from us in 1985 to the cash, right? Like, I'm not sure what the action steps are in this book, right? Whereas in a lot of utopias or dystopias, it's a little bit clearer what they might be, right? You know, Bradbury says you should turn off the idiot box sometimes, right? You know? right. <laughs> uh, Orwell has a lot of questions about language and, you know, relationships between power and, and the average person or so on. I'm not immediately sure what the action steps are from this book. So I guess to that extent, I would say, yeah, it does feel a little bit more about an actual future than about the present. Does that make sense? I'm not sure I answered your question very well. But no, I think, I think, no, I think you, well, it's, it's a really big question. I, I, you know, um, I don't think I have a great answer for it either. Cause I, I just kept thinking about how successful this book was. And of course, how successful should it, should it be um, in regards to saying, what will we look like in the future? But I, I like, I, I, to the extent that I like this book, I think that it is because she accomplishes what to me is her main goal, which she actually, ta- she does talk about in one of the essays and it was kind of beautiful. Like I, I feel like I got exactly what she was going for as I read it and I wrote it out in my notes and I got to some of her essays or talks about this project and it feels like, she, you know, she bore out what I um, intuited and that wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like me being awesome. I think that was the success of the project being clear, even though it was in a, in a, in a quasi at least fictional mode but basically she wanted to disrupt she like you know in the book it even talks about that like the current moment our current industrial age technological age you know kind of those you know the the, the global economy all of this kind of technology-based materiality or whatever that this is a blip and the people they, they talk about it in the book that this is the a blip in the course of not just all of history but of human history and i did like the idea that like her utopia, her future, it's not like it's not more advanced. They have access to more advanced technology if they wanted it. There's an entire uh, city of the mind, which is uh, a, you know a sentient AI uh, community. Uh, uh, <laughs> the internet who woke up one day, you know, and went into space basically. But so there's there is technology that's still available. But it's sort of been left to the side, right? It's been left to kind of rot in the shed, so to speak. And I found that kind of convincing in a way um, that I don't find a lot of future projections or future utopias. In the end, though, I think that like I think the future is just it's it's hard to penetrate, you know. And so I, honestly, I feel like a lot of what this project did is it really made a case for kind of um, demystifying 
the deep past, actually, like in a, as, as you know, because it kind of projects current Californians who are mostly descendants of, you know, Europeans of some kind. Um, it projects them into the future far enough that it sort of comes full circle. And even though they don't live like Native Americans per se, they live on a tribal scale, right? And their spirituality is sort of all, it's like naturalism taken to an extreme, right? And they kind of live in harmony with the land. In a way that sounds cheesy to use that phrase, like harmony with the land is like a terrible way to say anything. But but that is truly what she's going for, is I think this return of a way of life that was normal across the entire globe, except for like, you know, I think she's wrong about this, but she, you know, she thinks it's a very short blip that we haven't been in that sort of culture. And so to that extent, I actually felt like this was a weirdly great book for demystifying the deep past, you know, for making sort of these um, almost foreign ideas of, you know, looking at nature and other humans and animals and so forth. She really makes it feel like, oh, I, you know, to think that my kids, 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 kids might one day have some connection with that. It, I don't know. It does. There's a demystifying element to looking backward after reading this book, but I still don't think, I'm not sure she still unmasks the future as well as I, as I wish she could, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure any, I'm not sure anyone can, you know? (laughs) So the third thing in the book, but the first two are very short. It's a very short note. And then a little poem is a little essay thing called towards an archeology span of the future. Yeah. uh, Where she talks about trying to do this project. She compares it with being an anthropologist of the past, right? And how, in some ways, the past is a lot closer to you in the future because you can dig stuff up about them, right? You can learn things about them, but when you're looking at the future, it's harder to predict. And she says, what is it, the only way she can think of to really try to get at an archaeology of the future? Yeah, the only way I can think to find them, them being the um, the future people, right? The only, the only archaeology that might be practical is as follows. You take your child or grandchild in your arms, a young baby, not a year old yet, and go down into the wild oats in the field below the barn. Stand under the oak on the last slope of the hill, facing the creek. Stand quietly. Perhaps the baby will see something, or hear a voice, or speak to somebody there, somebody from home. And that's obviously mostly poetry, but I think the general point there being, like, you have to sort of just try to imagine, like, what this person's life is actually going to be like, right? You have to kind of hook it to a real being you can see here, and then try to imagine what this person would be like and see how they respond to things, right? And that's kind of what the whole book is about, right? Is trying to figure out what would these people actually have to live like, and that's why it's primarily told, I think, through little jots of narrative and poetry rather than as an actual like anthropology textbook, even though it does feel like that at times. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, and she has this um, in one of the essays or talks at the end of the book, um, she says explicitly, you know, in order to speculate safely on an inhabitable future, perhaps we would do well to find a rock crevice and go backward. Yeah. And so I I think she does. Well, and, and she even talks about so one of the little blips in the um the edition that we have is uh, the short story that kind of for her, she says it kind of broke the code on how to tell this book on how to write this book. Um, And it literally is like, so she recounts something that she heard in her childhood while in the Napa Valley, basically. And then she like pauses and she, you know, in prose kind of looks at the reader and says, I'm now going to tell this (laughs) as if it's as if it happened in the Valley of the Gnaw, essentially, you know, she uses different words, but so she kind of, it's true. Actually, it was funny. She was right to leave it out of the book itself, but I can see, from like a writer's perspective how she discovered her voice how like the voice that she needed to tell the story a factual voice that like pretended to be transparent and, and actually is transparent but of course 
then you start making things up. So the transparency is always kind of a trick to just get the reader to, to feel narrative momentum, I think. But, you know, she literally says, here's something that happened in my childhood, when, of course, Napa Valley was more wild. Um, and then and then here's me projecting that story into the future where, where technology has basically failed. And I think that is a big part of this project. A big part of the project is like, you know, and she talks about in the again the end of the book about like a non-Euclidean <laughs> uh, utopia or California of the future, right? This idea that like we are on a linear progression, right? That we we just keep building things that move move faster, communication that goes quicker. Like her her novel, her world here, it it has that reality, right? It has an artificial um, intelligence that lives on these different terminals throughout the world and like the solar system or whatever, like, you know, right? Like these computers live <laughs> out of space partly and it's the internet to like a much higher level of um, efficiency, right? So it's even better communication, even faster over even um, bigger space, uh, you know, areas of space, right? Like it's not just the world now, now it's the solar system. So technology has advanced and yet she's said, look, at some points, the culture, like, you know, it, it isn't on train tracks, right? We're not just tied to this technological impetus. At some point, I think hopefully at least for her, we fall off the train tracks and we, we kind of have to create things anew. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of just spitballing here, but I, I do feel like I got that. I got the vibe, the vibe of like technology is not this kind of deterministic feature of the world that I think we pretend it is at this very moment. But yeah, I do think it's a it's a it's definitely a glimpse into history, if not into the future. I think one way we can maybe move from that to talking about uh, the book more specifically is to talk about sort of the central metaphor of uh, the Kesh, right? So w- one of the things she talks about in the in the book a lot is she says that they they kind of live within this central metaphor that structures their lives, and she even has a bit towards the end where she just talks about various other generative metaphors, as she calls them, right, that societies can use. She talks about you could have a generative metaphor of war, where your whole life is structured as war and struggle and beating other things, and a generative metaphor of, like, structure, like with a lord at the top and and all the sort of people that do what he says. And if I'm understanding this correctly, and here's where I spent a lot of time with this book. I mean, actually, I read it in, like, two days. But, I mean, you you take spend a lot of time with it. You spend a lot of time with these people. And at the end of the day, I still feel like I need to read significant portions of it again to make sure I fully yeah. get all the details, which probably means it's good, right? Because if at any point you read a 600-page book about a society and said, well, I know everything there is to know about, you know, 13th <laughs> century Mongolia or whatever, you probably didn't do a very good job or it was a bad book, right? Uh, and, but the sort of the central metaphor is what she calls the Heia If, right? Which is sort of a, you know, fuzzy mystical thing, but it's a, a hinge, like a joining point that she explicitly refers to as a hinge and then a right arm and a left arm going out in spirals, right? So that you, they kind of are all closer to each other and, and connected, but they all, like if you follow the lines back, you come to this hinge between these two points, right? And this is sort of the central metaphor for cash society, right? They structure their understanding of the world into things on the left arm and things on the right arm. You know, the five houses that are things mostly connected to earth and the four houses that are things connected to the sky, right? And... Yeah. So the whole sort of project feels like that, right? Where you're sort of feeling these connections, but everything has to come back to this one little connection in the middle, the hinge, right? I've forgotten where I'm going with this. I was doing a really good job describing this metaphor. (laughs) It was so good, Bill. (laughs) Well, I I can, I mean, I'll I'll, I'll jump in and then cut me off as you remember where you were going. Um, 
Well, so I, I so this because it relates to one of my biggest questions. Everything you're talking about relates to one of my biggest questions, which is that how serious is this book about spirituality? Because as much as I just went on and on about how it's actually about like the deep past and kind of recovering a sense of humanity that extends beyond our current technological moment, which it is, arguably, I think if, if this book is about anything, it is sort of about her spiritual vision of humanity. And I think she would push against that. I think she'd push against that partly because she has this great quote, which I love so much and which you're kind of talking about, which, um, she has this great quote where she says, I do not refer to the Valley system as the nine houses, as a religion or the hyemas as religious houses, despite the obvious and continuous relation of Valley living and thinking with the sacred. They had no God. They had no gods. They had no faith. What they appear to have had is a working metaphor. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I think this book, I think genuinely this book hinges on how convincing that metaphor is. And for me, I found it totally convincing, partly because it felt coherent, but I never got it. I never fully got <laughs> how the houses worked. You know, even like when I would like, okay, um, Coyote is you know part of this house, whatever. Like I, I never fully cohered for me, but it, it, but in a way that felt purposeful. You know, like I feel like as soon as you thought you got it, she was like, oh, you think you've got it? Well, um, let's go look at the moon dance where the men get to have sex with whoever they want to. <laughs> You're like, whoa, whoa, hey, <laughs> what's this culture about? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think that's a beautiful way to talk about belief as a working metaphor. But also for me, it felt like she genuinely is trying to work out um, the lens through which she wishes people saw the world. You know, I, even a little very little thing. So like I'm one of those people who um, who hates when folks talk about their dogs like they're kids, you know. <laughs> and it's for lots of reasons. One of the reasons is that it's inaccurate, you know, like – because you're a human, you could have human children, even if you adopted them. And so partly it's just not accurate. They're not your kid. And also because, but I, but I think she made me realize that it's not just me being like a human snob or like a parent snob or whatever. Because in this book, they, um, they refer to other animals as people, right? Like um, people of the valley include other animals who walk around. And when they talk to them, they call them brother or sister, or like Grandma Willow even, right, the trees. And which, of course, is very influenced from like a certain, at least 80s Native American idea. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, don't know how, I, mean, I don't know how accurate it is the Native American ideology or whatever. I don't know that well. But I, I found, it was funny because I think, you know, I loved that. I loved the idea of like brother dog. And I was like, oh, I... I don't like people babying things. <laughs> I don't like I don't like when anyone babies a baby or a dog. Like I'm also against it with humans. So it was kind of a nice breakthrough for me. But I but again, the metaphor it goes it goes that deep, right? It touches everything. Everything she talks about kind of gets referenced back to this working metaphor in a way that that does feel convincing to me. That's a good that's sorry, we're going to go way off into the reads here, but that's a really good uh, objection to people referring to their dogs as their kids because they're not kids partly because they are fully mature whatever they are right like you're sort of I, denying honestly, them yeah. the full expression of whatever it is to be a dog by saying that they're kids right because like my dogs are 10 and 12 years old they're not kids they're they're grown adults of whatever it is that they are yeah that's a good i was gonna say hmm. g genuinely i for a long time now i've been looking for language to talk about that because like i don't i don't like the language period or whatever but like i've always felt like it's somehow reduced the dog you know like it, it took away from the dogness of a dog to make it a baby do you know what i mean and i actually feel like that's what she gets at like this, this huge love this companionship like i like, i i believe in all of that you know 
But to have the right language to express it, I think is important. And I, and again, this is me being as, about as hippie as I'll ever be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to connect with like the dearness of a deer or whatever, which we should talk about. I want to talk about but that yeah. right now, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, because, well, yeah, go ahead. Um, so the language, uh, so I, she does put a lot of work into the language. She makes a joke about how she, uh, it's, it's her secret vice, which is a Tolkien quote. Tolkien talks yeah. about his secret vice being to uh, create languages. Which of course, told, you know, J Double R. It's not a secret, pal. Everyone knows this was your thing. <laughs> like, this, is, this was your whole thing. Uh, but anyway, uh, she she refers to like one of her illustrious predecessors, and she shares that secret vice. And she does put a lot of effort into the language here. Um, and one of the, and I, I don't pretend to fully understand this, but one of the interesting sort of features of Kesh is that they have two modes for referring to things: Earth mode and Sky mode, right? Which it means whether you're referring to like a specific example of a deer or like the concept of dearness, right? Is the example right. she gives, which is not, uh, not a platonic form, at least not as I understand Plato, which is not very well, because when you think <laughs> yeah. of a, uh, you know, my understanding of Plato, and this is where some graduate student is going to find me and kill me because I'm wrong. But my understanding of Plato is you have, you know, the forms, which are perfect examples of the various things that they are. And then the earthly examples of these sort of participate in the form sort of imperfectly, right? So you have a chair, right. which you know interacts or participates is the word I was always taught with the concept of a chair, you know, chairness, but it's, a, it's like a lesser copy, right? Whereas, you know, that's where the sort of, that's one of the things like the shadows on the walls about in the cave, right? Right. I mean, right. I'm right. Right. I'm not just yeah, fully yeah, off that's base. Correct. Okay. Um, so your mistake, you know, when you, when you take the, the chair for chairness, you're looking at a shadow cast by you know, uh, not the actual object. Uh, whereas I don't think that's how the cash think of things, right? It's not like an individual deer is like a lesser copy of the concept of dearness. I think it's more of a, uh, like dearness is like sort of a, almost a spirit, right? They would, they would never use the word spirit, right? But like a sort of, there's a thing that all deer have in common and there's a way that all deer sort of have this sort of community and way of being, right? It's not a lesser copy of, does that make sense? So anyway, that's, I, it, that's one thing I think is really interesting about it. The other thing, and this is super nerdy, but there's a bit in one of the philology chapters where she talks about how if you're using a word, and I can't remember any of the words, but, you know, if you just say the word, that's referring to it in sky mode. That's referring to it in the part of the language referred to, you used to refer to, like, general concepts or in fiction, interestingly, right? But if you put a Z on the end, then you're referring to it in earth mode, which is also a really fascinating idea, right? Like, the default word is actually not the word you would use for this critter you saw on the road, right? The default word refers to dearness, right? Porcupineness or whatever. And then when you put a uh, suffix on it, then it becomes, well, I saw this deer. And that's just, I don't know. That just that was really interesting, right? Like what a way no, to I, communicate I the way they, they view the world, right? Um, is you actually have to modify things to refer to specific instances. Um, well, and which I, is cool. I, I th well, that, that gives me two thoughts. One thought is a little earlier, which I was going to say, you know, this idea of dearness and then the specific example of deer it's almost a pre-Socratic, you know, kind of notion, or maybe like even a Buddhist notion of, of almost like, because there's a lot, of, there's a lot in this book about the one expressing itself in the many, you know, mm -hmm. and there is a, there is a sense in which like unity is the default, uh, you know, spiritual reality, and then there's an appearance of difference that's actually not true. And I, and I, I don't think she actually ever fleshes out the, how that relates to dearness and dear, but I do think in some ways the, she's getting at the notion of like that the, you know, the deers are the, the expression of the one in dearness. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's not so much that, that, there's, that there's an ideal dearness 
as it is dearness is this particular expression. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's uh, But you know, but yeah. there's there's a one in a many paradox that she's always trying to kind of play around. The second more concrete notion um, is that I think she's right to try and plant a lot of her gardens of world building here in language. You know, I think that she did learn a lot from Lewis or Lewis, my gosh, Tolkien, Lewis, ugh. Um, <laughs> Lewis, who famously made up languages. Yeah. Famously didn't give a, sorry, crap, crap about that. Um, <laughs> but you know, but ser- but genuinely, I, I think that one of the first thoughts I had about this book, I mean, very early in it, it's in my notes. It was like, this is sort of like a bizarre Cimmerillion, right? This is sort yeah. of a, uh, a, a explicit world building, you know, note taking exercise that's almost not even fictional. And like Tolkien, I think she's wise to try and reveal the culture through its language. Of course, that's what, you know, it's what reveals so much about a culture, but it also is what is formative about a culture, you know, the way we speak. And I, and it, what, what I liked is like, I'm not sure if the language stuff totally works. Like some of that is always over my head. I've never been a huge, like learn Elvish kind of nerd, you know, um, those nerds are bad. I hope they're listening. Um, <laughs> but, but truly I, I still, I felt, it felt like the right move world building wise, right? That you have to kind of, you have to, or, or maybe, maybe it didn't, I don't know. Are we all poisoned by Tolkien bill? You know, like <laughs> to make it feel real, do we have to do language now? Do you think? I do. I, I do think there's a sense in which a lot of writers think they have to do that, but they're not Oxford trained philologists. And so they screw it up and they shouldn't bother. Uh, but that's a slightly different conversation than the one you're having. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to make a strong uh, statement here about how language works in the human brain. Was it the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? Which is like language shapes your brain to like an extreme example, which is of course most famously yeah. in science fiction expressed in Ted Chang's wonderful novel or short story, the story of your life which becomes a rival, right? Which is that idea taken to a, an yeah. incredible extreme where if you learn this other language, you actually perceive time differently. Um, right. Real quick, Ted Chang is the best. Um, just, so th- just so great. That out there. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I do think that, I, I think, to the I said that I've never read a book like this. I agree that one of the only other books sort of like this is The Silmarillion, which I think sort of doesn't count because Tolkien didn't really intend to publish it like that, right? <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Like, it's sort of complicated how the Silmarillion comes to be. And also, it doesn't read anything like the Silmarillion, even as they're both books about made-up societies that have lots of poetry in them, right? Um, like, it just doesn't feel like that at all. I, I don't know. I, I think that certainly Le Guin is taking that sort of Tolkienian approach to world-building very seriously. So I guess I'm not sure I'm willing to say that it's poisoned or not, because I don't know enough about how human brains work, right? But I think what little neuroscience we do understand does sort of back up the idea that language is going to be sort of generative of culture, even as culture is generative of language. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's right. It's hard to get away from, yeah. It's, it's, and I definitely think, whether or not it's good or bad, I definitely think Tolkien set a high bar, you know? Um, yeah, well, you, you know. know a, lot of, a, lot of people, a lot of people don't like Tolkien out there for some reason. I feel like, I feel like I've been hearing that more and more these days. But, I, I mean, his, his world building, it, it, you know, it's famous for a reason. It ruined a lot of fantasy for a reason, you know, <laughs> because it was, so, it was so hard to not want to imitate. <laughs> I've been reading Fritz Leiber lately because I should always be reading Fritz Leiber. And uh, Leiber is sort of another approach to fantasy, right, where he's just sort of cheekily lazy when he names things, right? And he's winking at you when he does it. But, like, his yeah. step-dwelling horsemen are named the Mingals. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He'll just, like, the... the uh, uh, overlord of, of Lankmar, at least at the beginning of the stories, is a guy named Karstak Ovarta Mortis, which is sort of dog Latin for like over death. Oh you know what I mean? Like, and he's not yeah, yeah. he's not pretending he's doing anything other than that. It's a whole different approach to world building, which is uh, 
I think is probably a better approach than a, not for fantasy as a whole. I'm not saying that, but I think a lot of fantasy writers should just maybe just do that because yeah, they're not philologists. Like Liber was no. not a philologist; he was a lot of things, but he you know, he's not going to do that. Well, um, and similar similarly, I mean, I mean, Le Guin consistently in her science fiction has like this anthropological obsession, right? Yeah. She really wants to dig out um, from you know our own assumptions or our own you know, <laughs> ways of not thinking. She wants to kind of, yeah, she wants to break what's artificial out of what we think is natural, right? So she, this, and the, the, the dispossessed is the best example I have where she, com- you know, she completely enters an anarchist mindset, you know, and she yeah. makes these great characters and she makes this great conflict and it's a very great story, but she is a cultural anthropologist. That That's basically how her mind works. And I think similar to Tolkien, although from a very different angle, you can't fake the seriousness of that. You know, yeah. Either you are obsessed with that <laughs> or you aren't. And so I think where she and Tolkien get a lot of authority from their obsessions, from their secret vices, it's just not something you can ape. You can't, you can't fake it. Um, yeah. But I do, I, do, I do think that in some ways this book... Well, it's two things, really. It is a Silmarillion if um, that approach was applied to uh, California. It's like, that's actually basically what she says. She yeah. talks about world building at one point. And it is, I think, an attempt to, like, can you strip world building down to its barest bones? Where, okay, we have some characters and we have some narrative action. And, like, the stone-telling novella, I think, is actually a pretty good novella, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I do, too. Um, and you could totally extract it and just make it a novella, almost, but not quite. And um, and yet, despite the, those those genuine narrative flourishes or whatever, um, I think she wants to ask the question: like, can I strip world building down to its most essential parts and still make something artful? You know, can I make something, if not a novel, at least poetic? And I, yeah. you know, and I think we have to talk about the poetry and the songs and everything else. Um, I'm curious how those landed for you. If, if, you know, if you liked them or if it was, if they were always kind of contextual, you know, like, did you like them individually or were they always sort of enhanced by being a part of this project? So I'm going to answer that question, but first I'm going to say two things I probably should have said earlier. Uh, just <laughs> briefly as context, it's important to note that Ursula K. Le Guin's father was like a very important anthropologist and she grew up like really following that work, right? So Alfred Kober was a big deal. The Anthropology Hall at Berkeley was named after him until like five minutes ago. I don't know why they changed it, to be honest. Um, he worked And he worked primarily with um and about native american cultures in california right right so that's she has a at least some claim to knowing what she's talking about right <laughs> right totally. oh yeah um, she totally does and he lived he was old uh she calls him at one point grandfather age right he, he was more like 1870 or something like that right so he had, he had a lot of direct personal connection with um native american folks who had a more direct connection to you know what i mean who were older and therefore had a director connection to obviously not literally pre-contact times but a a less you know, less contacted time. He had a right. complicated relationship with a guy named Ishii, who, which is actually a name that he gave him. Uh, I read up a bit about this. Uh, Ishii was the name that Alfred Krober gave him because I forget what tribe he was from. I'm sorry. But apparently in that tribe, you get your name from somebody else and there weren't any other people, right? He was the last one. And so uh, through this conversation, it was sort of a complicated relationship, I guess. And I'm not pretending to go into a lot of detail about it. The other thing I need to say is I don't know anything about Taoism. It's one of the religions I know the least about. It's a real <laughs> flaw in my character. But Ursula K. Le Guin draws a lot from Taoism as she's yes. writing this book and all of her books in general. I don't think she called herself a Taoist, although she was certainly very interested in Taoism and the Tao Te Ching and so on. I'm not saying any of this correctly, I'm sure. Uh, 
And so I don't know enough about it to talk about it, but I feel like I should say Taoism is important to Ursula K. Le Guin. And if you know a lot about it, you might get more out of the book, right? Like the hey, uh, if symbol <laughs> is, is directly, and she says this, definitely inspired partly by the yin and yang symbol, right? So one, one way these people are more complicated than just future Native Americans is they're also future Native American Taoists. Do you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's so, exactly right. Anyway, I just I, I don't know enough to talk about either of those things in any detail, but I felt like I should say them. Uh, answering your question, which was about poetry. So here's, as you know, uh, I don't know a lot about poetry. It's probably my biggest weakness in, in literature. Uh, I, of course, firmly believe that the purpose of poetry is to generate titles for science fiction novels, as we discussed in our last podcast. <laughs> well, this, this one did, you know? <laughs> this one did, yeah. The title of this po- book comes from one of her poems, so I'm still right. Uh, Joel is trying to drag me kicking and screaming into an appreciation of poetry with some Christmas gifts he got me, and I'm working on it. Um, so I'm not the right person to talk about which poems work. I would say generally I found them very convincing, if that makes sense. Like, I, yes. I, I believe yep. that these people wrote these poems, which is the point, more than whether they're individually interesting works of poetry, right? Um, they're generally very simple. Um, again, to my untrained eye, they read a lot like like haiku, right? Which, to my limited understanding, is right. about describing a very specific moment in time, right? Uh, certainly don't rhyme as translated into English. I don't know if they do a Japanese not, although I don't think they do. Um, but I don't know that. I don't know, again, anything about poetry. Uh, they also have, they tend to be very much structured on a certain number of uh, beats per line, right? Uh, the Kesh care a lot about five and four, which I think I've talked briefly about. There are five houses of earth and four houses of sky. So a lot of their poetry is in fives or in fours as she talks about it. And of course, if you look at the poetry, it's five beats, which of course is in English. So it's a little bit cheeky, right? Like what is it in Kesh? Right. Although she does write some poetry in Kesh um, explicitly, but uh, I think you can get away with that. I think that's fine, right? <laughs> uh, we, can inter- we can imagine all of these as very, very carefully translated the way people are always translating the Od- Odyssey into however many beats per line it has. I almost said beats per measure. That's a whole different thing. Well, and um, a, a poem that she says is um, from um, Native American culture, which she actually has in the back of the book, is, I dream of you, I dream of you jumping, rabbit, jackrabbit, and quail. Um, what I just read, that is definitely, I think, a lot of the tone of what she creates for the people of you know the Valley of the Na, right? Yeah. She definitely has in mind that kind of naturalistic. I agree. I agree that the haiku is definitely in there as well as like as like a influence. But um, no, I just think she she really I think she is convincing in the style of what she does. I don't think they work as poems outside of this project. You know, and they don't need to. But it did mean that like. I probably could have had less of them, to be honest. I think there are probably too many of them. And she's, of course, having a lot of fun writing poetry. And you know what? I think she can do whatever she wants. But I agree. I mean, certainly, I felt like there were too many of them. Although, as we've established, I'm a Philistine. But um, (laughs) I'm going to read a couple of... And they're all very short. I'm going to read one short one here, just to sort of give you guys an example of what we're talking about. Uh, She opens the book with... Or I guess there's a little note beforehand. But the first major thing you see is the quail song. from the. It's called From the Summer Dance. And it's just two... Stanzas? Is that the right term? This is how bad yeah. I am at poetry. All right. St- <laughs> in the fields by the river, from the meadows by the river, from the fields by the river, in the meadows by the river, two quail run. Run two quail, rise two quail, two quail run, two quail rise, from the meadows by the river. And I think that's generally representative of the poetry in the book, right? It's, it's all fairly simple. Uh, it's rarely using very complicated words, partly because it's often... This one uh, doesn't, but often trying to fit into either five or four syllables per uh, line, which doesn't give you a lot of space to maneuver. Um, And it's 
usually connected to the natural world, right? A lot of the poetry is about stuff they see around them. And then if it's metaphorically connected to them, it still tends to be hooked into animals and plants. Not always, right? There is actually a, I think maybe my favorite poem in the book, and I'm going to ask you what your favorite poem is too. So you got to have an answer to that. But I think probably my favorite poem in the book is from several bone poems from the blue clay don't house. take my don't take the clown one that's I'm in not, my notes i'm not okay. <laughs> i'm not although i noticed that you wrote that down uh just because i'm i'm sort of a you know always an existential nihilist i don't know i kind of liked oh i am frightened i am afraid afraid each night i go in desolation to a miserable place is there no other way i wish i had died young suddenly before i knew i had to make the bones of my soul out of cold rain and aching and walk into the dark I don't know. I kind of enjoyed the idea of making the bones of your soul out of like cold rain. I kind of liked that. So no, I well, and she she wrote poetry as like a, a normal. Yeah, yeah. You know, she she was absolutely effort. a poet. Yeah. Um, I I think you're right though. I mean, I think the poetry is simple. One of the ways it's simple. Welcome to my poetry class. Is um, but one of the ways it's simple truly is that it, it doesn't um, mess with grammatical breaks very much, right? So like line breaks usually follow um commas or natural yeah. period breaks like right she's she, the, the, the syntax is sort of kept intact by the line breaks and the structure of the poem which is part of why it, why it feels simple um my favorite it's not the whole poem but and part of this because i think it's funny to be honest my favorite poem was don't break your hand bones trying to break mystery pick it up eat it use it wear it throw it at coyotes the bones of your heart there's mystery clothes wearing the body there's a good clown <laughs> and i really i don't know why like i think there's actually something semi-profound about that to be honest um but i also i love you know there's a good clown <laughs> that's such a great sign off um and actually it's not I, I didn't like it as poetry but i there is something that's you know so we don't have to get into this yet per se but like this book is so weirdly structured you talked about it earlier there's a back of the book to the original publication which um, is truly, I think, paratext, right? It's yeah. it's her own. It's literally appendices. I don't think you don't. If you didn't read it, you would still get the heart of this book without it, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and the climax of the book is two poems. One is kind of written to the people of the future, and the last is um, this initiation song from the Finder's Lodge, where we find the title of this book, because I don't, as you've heard. All science fiction books <laughs> draw their no 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 no. From no 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 that's not correct I didn't say that <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I don't know where red Mars and blue Mars get their what poetry they're in <laughs> the, purpose, no, of the purpose of poetry is to, to generate divide. titles for yeah. science fiction no, Faust of the antecedent I got it, I got it. Um, okay so the, but it ends in this really like this really pure sentiment and I think the whole book is a pure sentiment and she talks about this which we're gonna have to get to in the conversation between Pandora and the archivist, there's a pure mm-hmm. sentiment behind this book that I think she gets away with as all books do who have a pure sentiment through form. The form is so sort of captivating and the, the literary qualities are sort of convincing enough that you can get away with being a really simple child at heart sometimes. And then she allows herself at the end, which is also often why I like genre, to be honest. I think sometimes they allow themselves to go places that lit folk don't because it's not cool. Which is a cliche that I'm repurposing. It doesn't matter. Anyway, but the, the the last kind of poem of the, I think, of the book proper, the last thing of the book proper is this poem that ends, Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk mindfully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us. Return to us. Be always coming home. And this actually is my best example of a poem that, like, out of context, 
I would burn. <laughs> <laughs> I would see it. I would see it on Facebook, and I would, you know, I would like dislike. I don't know, I'm not on Facebook anymore. I don't know if you can dislike things, but you can't. Um, oh, that's stupid. Anyway, no, it's very um, important. It's, it's okay. That's probably good. I don't care. Do that. But anyway, <laughs> all right, well, I don't care about that at all, to be honest. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, out of context, it's garbage. Um, in some ways, it's not garbage, but I think it's not profound. But as the end to this project, as like a simple thought, you know, that ends this whole intellectual, you know, <laughs> maximalist kind of art form, I found it really moving, to be honest. Yeah. I really did. Um, and to the point that, like, I read everything afterwards. There was some deep skimming in a few parts, but, like, the, that's where the book ends. And I think everything afterwards is just optional. Yeah, I think I generally agree with that. Uh, I, uh, you know, I love whenever you get a title in, a, in the halfway through your book and you're like, oh, there it is. You do the Leo DiCaprio. Yeah, yeah. Yet, right. But right. Uh, that's it, it, it works really well for a reason. Right. Like and uh, uh, yeah, no, it, it's a very good ending to the book, even though as I agree with you, it's the sort of poem that I would completely scrub over on Facebook and ignore and maybe even be snarky about. All right, well, let's let's go to the um, uh, the Pandora talking to the archivist. Yeah. Um, maybe you can remind us, like, who Pandora is and how that motif works or whatever, you know? So four or five times throughout the book, I should have counted but didn't, uh, she will have a little, I mean, it's two or three pages at most, often just a couple paragraphs, uh, section, and it's always called something like, Pandora, worrying about what she is doing, addresses the reader, right? And it's very clearly just Ursula K. Le Guin thinking about what she's about, right? Like, she has one where she... I, th I think one of the other really important ones is Pandora worrying about what she is doing. She addresses the reader with agitation, which I think we're going to have to talk about, which is where she's sort of apologizing for her whole project and where I think it makes sense that she calls herself Pandora, right? Um, but we'll skip that for now and go to a conversation Pandora has with an archivist. And this is written as dialogue, you know, A-R-C-P-A-N, back and forth, right? And it starts out as you know, sort of a conversation about how the cache do and don't preserve texts, right? So they have right. access to this exchange, this incredibly powerful supercomputer that they mostly ignore. And when they use it, they mostly use it to send messages to each other. And only a few specific weirdos do like historical research. And even they don't do it anything like the way we do. So like it's a great conversation with an archaeologist who's, <laughs> or not an, archa an architect, pardon me, who's talking about all the different kinds of houses that are built and when they like they ask him like so when was this built he's like ah oh, i guess i could look into that for you i don't know and the answer <laughs> yeah. is 2000 years ago you know what i mean <laughs> right um but this conversation starts out as being primarily about that and the the cache will keep bound copies of books and they have a whole sort of um organization that is dedicated to doing that right but they don't keep them forever right they keep them until they think enough people have read them and they're not useful anymore and then they literally burn them right right uh, yeah. as just sort of a well you know, we feel like everyone's gotten enough about this so there are some texts that are popular but there's nothing like a 2000 year old book that everyone reads right um there's a few oral histories that appear to be like coyote stories that appear to be um pretty old right but uh that's it but then about halfway through this conversation she starts kind of arguing with the archivist about her about always coming home right about her project right yeah. about what is this a utopia why is it what is she doing and why the archivist kind of comes ahead of many of the criticisms that people were going to make of her i think uh and it's a very weird little bit where she's just kind of yelling at herself I, i'm gonna read a, a little portion here uh, and then joel you can tell me what whatever you wanted to say um but a couple of the best lines um she's kind of like, hey, why are you, you know, you're not, it's kind of weird that you're not keeping these things. Like, what we should do to keep, you know, information free is to, like, have public libraries and teach people to read and to use computers and so on. And But it keeps getting harder to do things. 
And the archivist says, I didn't mean to make you sad, Ant. And she responds, I never did like smart-ass utopians, <laughs> which is wonderful. Yep. You know, always so much smart, healthier and saner and sounder and fitter and kinder and tougher and wiser and righter than me and my family and friends. People who have the answers are boring, niece. Boring, boring, boring. And then the archivist says, but I have no answers and this isn't utopia, Ant. And Pandora says, the hell it ain't. And the archivist says, this is a mere dream dreamed in a bad time. And again, this isn't Pandora saying this. It's really, it, it's a smart, I think, choice. The archivist says, this is a mere dream dreamed in a bad time and up yours to the people who ride snowmobiles, make nuclear weapons, and run prison camps by a middle-aged housewife. A critique of civilization possible only to the civilized. An affirmation pretending to be a rejection. A glass of milk for the soul ulcered by acid rain. A piece of pacifist Jean Jacquerie. And a cannibal dance among the savages in the ungodly garden of the farthest west. To which Pandora responds, you can't talk that way. And the archivist says, true. (laughs) 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 And then they just end up like singing a song. Uh, It's really very good. So that's the, I think, the core of the archivist conversation. So what did you want to talk about? No, I think that so that I wanted to quote that exact part about snowmobiles. Because if nothing else, I think it, um, well, it is really funny, actually. But um, but actually, there's something about, so I, I've been reading a few of her essays, Ursula K. Gwen's, on the side, very slowly. You know, it took me years to get through, probably, because I've gotten slower and slower as a reader. But, um, you know, she does, she does this constant thing where she does talk about herself as, like, um, as a housewife, you know, like, like half intellectual and house, half, half housewife, which I'm always interested in people who have sort of like these, you know, domestic responsibilities who are also writers, because that's my life, or at least that's the life I'm trying to build. Um, and it's the life everyone has, in truth. It's just a lot of writers are bad at domesticity, and so I like the ones who are okay at it, like she was. Um, but more so, I love I love the the anger that the archivist, you know, reveals, right? It's, it's not her saying, it's not Pandora saying it, but of course it's her writing it. <laughs> and I, I, I actually, I, I, I liked the anger behind it because I think this is one of my favorite little theories about every dystopia is that almost every dystopia we've gotten in the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, especially on film, they're usually secretly utopian, right? So even stuff like I Am Legend, like, wouldn't it be nice if like, you know, you could walk down the street. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, but seriously, like in the, in the pandemic, you saw this. The pictures of New York City emptied of people. Um, a lot of folks had different reactions to it. And, of course, they had people had reactions to the reactions. But, like, there was a certain eerie beauty that people saw in it. Um, I couldn't decide what I, th- I thought because, you know, I was at home with my kids all the time. And I'm not thinking at all. But um, but you saw this reaction to, like, our pandemic moment where um, the extremity created a new way of seeing New York City or whatever, and people liked it. It kind of broke the wheel that we all live in, or this, this busyness that we all live under in the modern age, in America at least, was broken in some ways. And, of course, a lot of other things were broken too. But so I, I liked it because I do think this book is one of the best and most honest works of utopian uh, utopia fiction because it's based on the explicit idea that like you don't get utopia without apocalypse. Yeah. Right. Before you can break sort of the technological necessity we all live with, you know, the ways in which cars, roads, email, everything has now become interfaced or interlaced and so forth, so on. All of that would have to be wiped out. Right. Like that's in some ways the argument, the implicit argument of this book and every utopia dystopia is that, oh, you want to get back to living on a tribal scale or, you know, have this natural connection with the world that's not interfered with by the claims of civilization. You have to destroy civilization. 
And so I don't know. I think there's I I think a lot of dystopia fiction is dishonest about that, right? Like a very cheap one would be like Katniss, right? Like we're supposed to hate the world she lives in, but like the opening is like she gets she's a she's a kick-ass huntress who like lives, you know what I mean? Like in this small community, and like yeah, it's poor and stuff, but like there's a way in which they've gone back to a simpler life. I think you see that in almost every dystopian fiction, but they're usually not honest about it. And here she says, "Look, the anger." leads to, you know, I think leads to this great, this great desire for things to be different. And I don't know how to get there without wiping out um, the world. Well, and she says that in so many words in the, or not in so many words, but very close in the worrying about what she's doing, addressing the reader with agitation section I'm talking about, right? That opens with, have I burned all the libraries of Babel? Was it I that burned them? You know, well, if they burn, it will be all of us that burned them. But now while I write this, they aren't burnt. The books are on the shelves and all the electronic brains are full of memories. And she says again, uh, you know, she's worried about we're having too many kids and it's going to destroy civilization. She says, so I killed them all off. You may have noticed that the real difference between us and the valley, the big difference is quite a small thing, really. There are not too many of them. Was it I that killed the babies? And then she says, well, obviously not literally, right? But in order to get to this utopia, exactly like you're saying, she has to kill everyone first, right? And I think that's the source of the Pandora metaphor. You let me know what you think about this, right? Is, of course, Pandora opens the box, which lets out all the evil things into the world. But at the bottom, there's a little thing called hope, right? That's the old, 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 old myth. And I think that's the source of the Pandora metaphor, is in order to get to this thing called hope that she's interested in, or whatever it is, she actually explicitly says she's not sure if it's hope or just more time, right? Um, in order to get to that, she has to let all this horrible stuff out into the world, right? She has to kill everyone else, and she has to, like, poison their genetic codes so they can't reproduce very quickly, right? And I think she's very honest about that, and it's one of the one of the things about the Pandora sections I really enjoyed was these moments where she sort of is, again, worrying about what she's doing in so many words, right? Worrying about whether this is really a a good project or not in some ways. You know what I mean? Like morally, you know, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that sort of, and it's not most of the book. I think all told, all the Pandora stuff is 10 pages, right? Oh, it's very little, yeah. But I, that sort of nervousness about the whole project, in addition to, I think, making the work more thematically interesting, also made me just like her a lot more. Do you know what I mean? Like how many authors do you yeah. know who are willing to be publicly nervous about their big books in a way that isn't like self-aggrandizing? Is there any number of like contemporary novelists who are going to be undercutting everything they say, right? But it's always sort of a performative, like, thinking about, thinking about, thinking about thing, right? Like, Which, honestly, yeah, in my notes, I, I, you, you mentioned that we disagreed, because um, I, I didn't like the Pandora stuff at first, you know? Um, and I, I didn't, and I think it's because I've run into it so often, this undercutting instinct, you know? But by the end, I loved it. I mean, I love, like, the conversation with the archivist is, is one of my favorite parts of the whole book, to be honest. Yeah, no, um, I agree with that. And yeah, I think you're right. The Pandora, I actually hadn't nailed it down that concretely, but yeah, it's that she has to destroy the world before you can, you know, uncover hope at the bottom. Um, but I also, I also like this section. I should, I should, you know, rewind real quick too, because this is literally talking about like my day job. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like they're like, they get into a very like specific conversation about, um, so the archivists, you know, they're kind of arguing about like, she's a, astonished that like you just get rid of everything which actually we had this conversation in real libraries right like it's called weeding or collection maintenance where we throw a bunch of stuff away that people don't want and there's always there's different theories about like how much of a core collection should you build and hang on to and how much should it literally be kind of um the preferences or as i would maybe say sometimes whims of the surrounding community um so they're, they're almost having that literal conversation but then um you know and she's like you throw away everything that's crazy and you know i, I love it though where he says um Books are mortal. They die. 
A book is an act. It takes place in time, not just in space. It is not information, but relation. And of course, I don't think she totally believes this, but I like that she's going to the extreme argument. But then he, he keeps going the archivist a little later, kind of pushing back against, you know, like this idea that like if you keep information, that's a democratic move, right? That's kind of what she says. Mm-hmm. Having, having the information last is a democratic move. And he says, okay, well, who controls the storage and the retrieval? To what extent is the material there for anyone who wants and needs it? To what extent is it there only for those who have the information that is there? The education to obtain that information and the power to get that education. How many people in your society are literate? How many are computer competent? How many of them have the competence to use libraries and electronic information storage systems? And honestly, at that point, I just started clapping. You know what I mean? Like, Because that is, that is my life. My life is seeing people caught in this information whirlwind and not knowing because their daily life doesn't require them to know how to step out of it. And of course they can't step out of it. They're required to be in the middle of it. Um, And it was kind of funny to be like, yeah, like, oh my gosh, this book makes time for an argument about weeding and computer literacy. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty far reaching book. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, her general point has only gotten more true as we've had more of an actual internet, right? Like, this is obviously the point everyone's making, but to some extent, QAnon is not a problem with not having enough information. It's having too much information and not knowing how yes. to make sense of it, right? It's a lack of literacy rather than a lack of access to information because you can just Google anything on the internet and find whatever you want. And if you don't have the ability to sort through what of this is likely to be nonsense, you can end up, you know, shooting at pizza stores or pizza, pizza well, stores. Yeah, you know, famously pizza stores. That's the idea, right? Pizza <laughs> stores? That's what they call them. You go to the store and you get some pizza. Pizza parlor, That's... pizza restaurant. Come on, Bill. <laughs> I, I didn't even, I didn't even flinch. I was like, yeah, pizza store. <laughs> no, but I, uh, I was gonna say, you know, if I actually there was this great article. Yeah, I don't know. It was in Harper's and then a couple years ago. It wasn't totally convincing, but it was really good about like how QAnon is actually a uh, a phenomenon of being like of overreading, yeah. not underreading. Like that, that there is still a judgment problem going on, but the judgment is that everything has to cohere as opposed to like things just don't make sense sometimes. And it was a very convincing argument because it was still about literacy, but it was almost like a saturation that destroys literacy as opposed to a, you know, like a lack of it, right? Like it was almost too much reading going on, like of a certain kind at least, um, which, which I liked a lot. And I think she also is getting at with like, if you don't throw some stuff away, it just, you know, it perseveres out of context. I, I like that, to be honest, to some extent. Just as a quick um, aside, I love the idea. So, like, all the coronavirus uh, conspiracy theories, there was a video going around of a woman, like, breaking down how if you take the words, you know, the letters corona, and you parse them through gematria, she literally said that, which is, you know, Hebrew number magic, right? Uh, you come up with the number of the beast and so on and so forth. And first of all, Gematria is done in Hebrew, you goofball. And second of all, my favorite <laughs> thing about it is the idea that there's an all-powerful cabal that can control the entire world and all of the media and, you know, manufacture a fake pandemic, but also can't resist the urge to sign its own work. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, uh, we've, we've fooled everyone from Fox to NBC to Russia to the United States to China with this pandemic, but, you know... We're going to call it the 666 Project. Uh, I just love <laughs> just, that idea so much. They're so vain, they can't let they it go. They just can't resist Some, it. Someone has to know. <laughs> yeah. We're going to let it only be found out by these goofballs, and I'm going to about to do I mean, so I'm going to stop. But no, anyway, no, that has nothing to do with anything, but I just really love that idea. And to be honest, I, I find it honestly sort of humanizing. Like, the, 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 yeah, I don't know. Like, first of all, what immense um, self-confidence you have to have to think that you're the one who's seen through this thing, yes. right? 
And totally. Then that that's just incredible. Like I just I need you know lessons in confidence from the goofballs and the and the uh, it, truckers they, yeah. convoy. You know what no. I mean? I totally agree, man. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's not about this it. is gonna. I don't know how I I don't know why why you reminded me of this, <laughs> but I I did want to like um I wanted to, on the on the note of this being like a, a um a book about our history, m- maybe more than our future. I was really impressed with just a few things that I I, I feel like I, I want to call out before I forget them again. One is the way in which um, the, what is it called, the reversal and the moon dance. So they so exactly recall what Charles Taylor, ta- Taylor talks about as the, you know, um, the feast of misrule, <laughs> where, right, like they're, you know, they're Saturnalia of a, of a sort, but like they, like she exactly describes, and she even calls it the reversal, which is what Charles Taylor says, like that these feasts of misrule were a chance for society to turn upside down and like let off some steam. And she talks about the moon dance. So this is a culture in which like women have the kind of prerogative um, in sexual relationships, right? Like, like you can go live with someone in, in a woman's house, but it's basically a matriarchal society, um, but specifically regarding relationships, right? Yeah. They can, women can kick you out. They can say no. They can say yes. And that's kind of the culture. It's almost like this weird um, chivalric courtly romance thing mixed in with, yeah, all of her other Taoism and <laughs> Native American interests. <laughs> um but all that to say is, you know, like the moon dance reverses that. And she talks about the ways in which there are still all these codes around what can and can't happen. But it's this truly like let loose night where the men come out naked and everyone can have sex with anyone, you know. But the whole point is to disrupt the to disrupt kind of the normal flow of things to like let loose, you know, maybe some pent up uh, cultural, you know, frustration or whatever it is anyway i thought i thought this the, the consistent synthesis of the past into this utopian future was was really impressive and there was um another another moment that caught me off guard in the same way which is when she has the uh the plays you know like the dramatic yeah. players who come through towns and it's not she kind of veers off of this and i'm gonna mess up the name but a lot in a lot of ways it's reminiscent of the uh Commedia dell'arte, yeah. whatever it's called, right? Where you had kind of stock characters and stark storylines, but um, they would differ from show to show based on audience reaction, based on who was playing it, based on a lot of factors. And I, I thought, I just thought that was a really impressive way to like make these historical things. Honestly, like even though it's this is about like California in the future, in some ways, like she simplified it and recast it in a way that like I will probably communicate a feast of misrule to someone using the moon dance at some point, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, or similarly, Commedia dell'arte, it, it's, it is, a, it's genuinely a little more concrete in my head. Cause I was like, Oh, right. I, I've heard of this before. And yet she's putting it into this future world, uh, you know, as a way to connect it to, of course, the past. And, I, and she, there's, there's so many moments of that where she sort of effortlessly interweaves these historical realities into this utopian anarchist Californian future that I, I was, I was partly just impressed, but also I, I enjoyed it. It was kind of fun. You know, I think she gives a lot of pleasure to the reader who can recognize and also who just enjoys kind of the, the change up of, of what's happening. You know, one of her big things is to, to really focus on how a lot of this is more of an oral tradition, or at least it's orally presented, even if it is written down, because repeatedly there's a recurring trope where the, this it's not always entirely clear whether pandora is the same person as this sort of anthropologist it's not quite clear and it doesn't really matter right yeah. but somebody is talking to a kid who's singing a song and she says can i write that down and he says something like i mean you can i guess you know what i mean <laughs> like it's it's not really right, yeah the point and one kid even says no it's a dragonfly song you can't catch it like that's not i improvised yeah you know? yeah um but 
there's one of the plays is, and she explicitly connects it to Job, or she says to one of the great biblical stories, but it's Job, right? Uh, it's a play about a guy who has everything and everything's wonderful, and then he loses all of it, and then he, you know, what to make of that, right? And uh, the play is written by this guy Chandi, who is also the name, the main character in the the sort of a Job figure, right? But uh, you realize she she says that it's what it actually is is a collection of I think about twenty what are called peg lines, right? Which are lines that she then italicizes throughout the dialogue. And that's actually the whole written play is these 20 lines, which is, you know, to take it really reductively, I'm having a great day. Oh no, my wife is dead. Now I'm sad, right? Like that's obviously right. reductive, but it's it's not that different, frankly, from what it is. And then all the rest of the text in that we have in, in this copy of the book is what this particular theater company did to string those together, right? Which, like you're saying, is exactly what, well, it's not exactly, but it's generally how my understanding of Commedia dell'arte works is you have your stock characters in a sort of a loose plot, and then they improvise the rest, right? Um, and these guys aren't necessarily improvising this story, but it's still their take on it, right? And if you go to a different troupe, you know, tomorrow, you might get an entirely different story that still follows that arc. And that's really interesting. Also, maybe think of Scaramouche, of course, which I love. Of course, so, yeah, I, um, I almost named... I already, I already <laughs> stopped from name-checking Scaramouche. <laughs> I'm never going to not name-check Raphael Sabatini. Um, I love which, that book so this much. This doesn't matter. Scaramouche is one of the stock characters in Comedia dell'Arte, and it's also the name that the the swashbuckling cool dude goes by. Um, and that's where I first heard of Carmedia del Arte, or Arte, or however you say it. Uh, yeah, same. I don't know how you say it. I just made it up. You know, I just There's an E it. at the end, but it's like Italian yeah. or something. I don't know. I couldn't. But... I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I just waited. I was like, as many vowels as possible, I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm pretty confident um, in pronouncing cash, but Italian is a whole other world, right? Like I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are a, f- a few other big things we got to get to, and not actual questions, but... Um, I don't know, Bill, but this might be a good time to make you uh, <laughs> sing for the folks at home. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's great. Um, I tried to do some music theory about this, but realized that I only know enough about music theory to get myself into trouble, so I'm not gonna, except so as to say that uh, it appears to be based on fourths and fifths, right? Which uh, would make sense in the metaphysics, right? If everything is, again, hooked to these yeah. ideas of four and five. Um, which even comes into a lot of the dialogue. People will talk about, there are four or five of us here, or I'll be here for four or five days, or in the, the novel within the novel. So not the novella, which is the narrative backbone of the book, but the text, which is presented as a novel that the cash wrote, right? Which is called Dangerous People. There's an right. actress who shows up and they say, how many are you, how many people are there? And she says, well, there's me plus nine, right? Which is also fun because she's counting the donkeys. Because uh, again, they're people, right? <laughs> that's like, right, that's right, yeah. Um, so... She wrote a lot of music. Well, she didn't, I think, write the music, but she uh, collaborated with her friend Todd Barton, I think is his name, who had done some music for some other stuff she had written. And they came out with an album. It's about 40 minutes long. You can still buy it on Bandcamp, which is, as you said, very funny uh, that you can do that. Um, And I did, and I listened through it. And uh, it's just sort of their attempt at some of the poetry and the music in the... Uh, in the setting, they actually did create the instruments that she describes, not for this album. They didn't have time, so the instruments on the album are either synthesized or are like a more traditional hammer dulcimer standing in for the super cool hinged five-string, four-string dulcimer that she talks about, which I want to hear that. I guess they built one later. Uh, same. That yeah. sounds super cool. Uh, I don't know how to play the dulcimer, but it's a great instrument. Um, and also you hit it with sticks, which is fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so th- she put a lot of effort into constructing this music most of it appears outside of the text but when she's talking about the music she does provide sheet music for two songs so we'll see how i do here oh and this is marked as quail song so i believe it is the quail poem i read to you guys earlier um it at least 
I don't speak Kesh, but it would it, it appears to scan correctly. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's something like this. Oh, and in the recording, uh, there's a... So they have drums, which are often tuned, and so the only accompaniment to the human voice is a drum hitting a D over and over and over again. I don't have one of those, but I'm going to beat time partly because it's in a really weird meter and partly because I think that's actually more appropriate. So it's something like this. <clears throat> Feho chanam na paratunam na feho chanam na paradanam na feho chanam na paratunam na feho chanam na paradanam na kailiku gelehu gelehu kailiku hu kailiku diu hu kailiku gele diu kailiku hu Paratunam na, feho chanam na, paratunam na, feho chanam na, paradanam na. Kailiku gelehu, gelehu kailiku, hu kailiku diu, hu kailiku geleriu, kailiku hu, paratunam na. So there, that's my attempt at a That song. was amazing. <laughs> Uh, for everyone who doesn't know, Bill and I are, you know, we were friends for lots of reasons in high school, but we were in choir together at some point eventually. And um, there was this, um, this like Hebrew song we were going to do for a, Chris, <laughs> a Christmas concert, like a Hanukkah song kind of, I don't know. And Mizei um, Yamaleo is how we said it then. Who knows how you're supposed to say it. Um, and... There's like this male solo at the beginning of the song, and it's like this really exposed, you know, they're they're on their own for I don't know, like 16 bars, something crazy. I can't remember. And we all, the entire choir, got the music, and all the guys were like, well, "This is Bill's solo." <laughs> <laughs> and I believe no one else tried out for that solo. We like made you try out for that solo, and I feel like I kind of did that to you again. <laughs> You know, like 18 years later, because uh, I'm so glad you did that. It was really good, by the way, Bill. That was oh, solid. Yeah. That was like a solid performance. It's got really um, weird. Uh, so in the, in the recording, they the Kylie Koo stuff, they cut that back and forth between two or three different voices. Uh, and it's a little bit weird to follow where that goes. Also, I don't I'm not very good at figuring out what the meter of something is if it's not in three, three or four, four or five, four. Right. Right. And so I can't tell if it changes or if it's just in an unusual meter. But like. It, it, there's a lot of weird rests and weird extra and missing beats. So it's, uh, <laughs> but I think it, like, I don't know if my performance was any good or not, but like, if you listen to it on the, uh, Bandcamp recording, like it really works that, that song in particular, I think you, you can imagine someone actually listening to that arrangement, not just cause they're, you know, doing extra credit for their always coming home book report. Right. Like it's actually, it's pretty good. Right. It's pretty solid. So no, that's how I feel with the whole book to be honest. Is that like any of these fun things she does like the poetry, to be honest, uh, you know, she does it at the highest caliber possible. You know, like not, not that it's always great poetry or always great music, but like they're not they're not weak efforts. You know, they're, yeah. they're true, sincere efforts. But and thank you for doing that. That was great. <laughs> Happy to help. Uh, I'm going to make you sing something next time. Um, but I, I, I don't I sing in high school. And that's that's that was the peak. You know, it's oh, only gotten okay. worse and worse. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I've had you know so much serious vocal. I guess I've had some. But um, it is it is kind of fun to like when you're singing it, like to try to think about the context it should be in, right. Which is a bunch of people sitting around a campfire, you know, beating a drum and singing it back and forth. And the little Kylie Koo bits, like that sounds like a quail, right? I mean, particularly oh, when yeah. you have different voices calling it back and forth, it really does sound like 
little quail talking to each other out in the field. So I think that's there's a reason that's one of the songs she picked. The other one is uh, two voices, and I didn't try to learn it because it's like I only have one throat, right? But uh, <laughs> it's. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's another good example of a song which really works in context, right? You can really imagine this society that's very connected to the land. They're not, ex- I mean, calling them a primitive society is wrong for a variety of reasons, right? But they, they do have this deep connection to the animals and the land, and they think the animals are other people, even as they, you know, they still hunt them, right? They're not vegetarians, right? right. Um, they, you know, so they're going to write music which sounds like the stuff they hear, right? So I think they did a good job with that. So that's mostly Todd Barton, I guess, and presumably not Ursula K. Le Guin, but, you know, she found a good um, partner. I actually was yeah, impressed did. by how much of the album I actually thought was legit worth listening to. I mean, I don't think it's gonna, you know, unseat. Here's where I should make a good joke here, but I'm tired. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's gonna hit insert the top of my joke. Yeah. Insert jo- the black keys or something. I'm not saying it's gonna beat that on my iTunes. But you know, it is it is it's a cool project, and I think that's sort of to come back to something we were saying earlier. Like, she loved this book. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is not she a book really that she wrote because she needed to write another book. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, she loves this book. I think I think for her, I think it's partly why people look at it and say, is this her masterpiece? Because there's something essential about her whole thought process, her whole, you know, her whole narrative approach, um, the cultural anthropology, but also her actual just, like, personal beliefs. There's something that is united about those two things in this book, which... You know, I think it has to also be like an actually exceptional work of literature to be, to be a masterpiece. But it's something there's something that's like um, uber Ursula Le Guin about it, right? Yeah. Like there's it's it's a pinnacle of you know these these literary and cultural anthropolog- anthropological interests that she has. And nobody um, else could have written this book, which is sort of what you were no, saying about no. the obsession. Yeah. But like not just you would need to be an, like a, a very skilled, at least amateur anthropologist to write this book, although you would. But also you'd have to have that connection to. The Napa Valley specifically, and yep. also have grown up with Alfred Grover, right? And grown up <laughs> hanging out with these guys who were there to be interviewed, and but were like family friends, right? They weren't just subjects, right? But like to have grown up with these, um, you know, Native American men who were talking to your dad about their culture, right? You would have to have grown up in that environment to write this book. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. Another um, random throwaway bit here. Uh, so they went to copyright the album because of course they did and they got the copyright for the book immediately and they didn't get the copyright for the album and they were like hey guys what's up and they didn't hear back and they didn't hear back and finally they said guys what what is going on like and the, i guess the official response was something like you can't copyright native american folk songs <laughs> <laughs> and they had to politely explain that this is all made up none of these people exist <laughs> and that's just kind of a oh fun the government screwing things up story but um i, I like that I like that a lot, you know, That's like, they're, like outrage, like how dare you try to copyright the cultural heritage of the whatever well, they, people and like, well, again, they don't live. It, spe- <laughs> it speaks to like the verisimilitude of the project again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I have one last big question before we, I think we can maybe move on to like little things we liked, unless you have a big thing too. Um, but the last kind of big question, which I think is, can be short answers still, but, um, and I'll kind of give my own answer first to kind of ground the conversation at least. But like, I, I was curious, and this is, we talked talk a lot about like the cultural, project she has and we've talked about you know the way it predicts the future or doesn't in the past and so forth so on but I, I was curious like apart from the way it reflects on actual human cultures like what specific parts did you find fascinating an example for me like I, I I loved the way that she talked about war as a boys game yeah that in the valley of the Na, this sort of like 
cultural taboo around war has been created, but not because war is violent, not because war is bad and evil and whatever else. It's because war is immature, right? So it's this cultural kind of like safeguard against war based on making it a childish thing. And I think it's like a really, first of all, it's a really great argument against war, you know? And it's kind of when you hear about sometimes, like uh, people, people, of course, make the you know, the criticism of war that it's, you know, people kind of playing a game with other humans' lives or whatever. But I, I do I I do think it's a genuinely great way of presenting a culture that restricts war through sort of um bypassing the moral conversation, right? At no point do they say, Hey, this is I can't believe you killed people. That's so evil. They say, you're being such a child. Yeah, this is embarrassing. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> this is so, I can't believe you would, yeah, shame us like this because you're acting like a little boy. And there's something about, like, actually hunting is mostly done by children as well. Like, most of the violence has been kind of put into childhood as, like, this over, you know, kind of, you're kind of over expressing your aggression or whatever. Um, I don't know, but I was curious if you had anything kind of along those lines or anything at all about the culture that you found kind of specifically fascinating, because I think she had lots of that stuff in there. Yeah, I have a few specific things. Uh, one, the idea of consent is very important in this society, and this is an idea that she flirts with throughout. I don't know if she really ever digs into it with a lot of detail, except when it comes to hunting, actually, where you, when you talk about going out and killing a deer, you say, this deer consented to die to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, this right, was, yeah. it is part of dearness that you can be killed by peopleness right but like this specific deer consented to die so if you go out and you don't kill anything rather than saying man i sure couldn't find anybody you would say nobody wanted you know nobody was willing to die to me today right right uh yeah. and this idea of consent uh with the animal world which of course they don't perceive as being as distinct as we do and also where sexual consent um for, like even the moon dance right this sort of orgiastic thing right if you're a woman and you don't want to go out there and have sex with any man who asks you you just stay in your house and that's fine right and they might come by and heckle you but they can't force you out you know what i mean right and that's fine right and if you do go out to the moon dance and you don't have sex with a guy who asks you it's like very rude you know what i mean <laughs> but, even, but even then it's not you know you're not killed right it's just and you know she talks about how there are stories of, of men being behaving very badly there but the the person saying so it's never heard of this actually happening right it's just right. like a like a romantic tale well, in the, the sense of well like also a, like the guy, the guys always tell it to each other is what they say yeah about yeah it's, it's like, like a, always repeat this story it's like a myth it's not a real thing right um and so and this is because of course there is no central government or really government at all in the valley of the cash right there's all these sort of cultural taboos and cultural norms but at no point do we hear about anybody putting on trial for anything you know what i mean um one point somebody talks about running some people out of the village but they're immediately said well we're gonna have to run you out then too if you do that you know you can't that's not something we do you know what i mean right <laughs> and there are right. people who do then voluntarily leave but there's you know and and this kind of connects to i know that and i know that the dispossessed was largely influenced by like kropotkin's sort of communist anarchism thing that he did right uh and i don't know kropotkin that well i've read some but he's complicated um and Certainly, like, this is sort of an anarchist utopia, right? I mean, there is no central oh, government. Totally. You know, yeah. if you store all your stuff up and don't give it to your neighbors, everyone is like, what are you doing? And they make fun of you and they shame you, but they don't come to your house and take it. There's no taxes, right? There's nothing like that. Um, but everyone, you know, the, the concept of wealth is in intrinsically connected to the ability to, and the ability and the practice of giving your wealth away, right? So someone being, she talks about how she has a hard time translating the words, like, rich, uh, or the words that in English are rich and, and wealthy because the cash concept is, you know, you have a bunch of stuff and you give it away, right? If you store all your stuff up at home, you're not rich, right? Um, so this idea of consent is really interesting as a sort of a, another animating 
metaphor almost, right, throughout the whole society. To the point where, like I said, they even talk about animals consenting to be hunted. Um, I thought that was interesting. Um, I have a couple of sort of small things. I don't know if they're exactly in responsive to your question about specific things I really liked. Um, I guess there's one story which is presented as a historical event about... So they trade with some of the... with many of the neighboring peoples, right? The people in the Valley of the Na are not all the people that exist. There are right. several other societies. The one we learn the most about is the Condors, who are the people... Uh, Stone Telling's dad is a Condor. They're the ones who are trying to run an empire. And like... Um, but there's a bit where they, they trade for cotton from further south. They trade wine. Oh, yeah, of course, they're yeah, still yeah. making wine in the Napa Valley, which makes sense, right? And they're trading... That, yeah. They're trading their wine for the cotton, and the cotton is really bad one year. And so they send the finders out to say, like, what the heck's going on? Like, the cotton's bad, and they didn't tell us, and they and they have... We don't really know what the exchange is yet, but we know that they said, you know, you understand there's a way they could have told us there was a problem, so what's going on? And so they send a group of finders out to, like, figure out what's going on. And in, you know, traditional Ursula K. Le Guin fashion, this doesn't turn come to blows. This isn't a, you know, a, a war party, right? It's a group of people to go out and just basically talk it out and figure it out. Uh, I thought that whole story was really, uh, really good. You know, the, sort of the way they perceive trade and the way they perceive, um, you know, diploma, diplomacy, right? Like, because yeah. <laughs> yeah. again, this was basically a di- diplomatic mission to figure out what's going on with your trade partner, but it's just not how it feels at all. Well, right? and I, I, th- I thought it was, again, it was a, as was the stuff with the Condor, it's a good showing of scale by her, right? That yeah. Like foreign, foreigners are people who live in Sacramento, yeah. you know, um, foreign, like, and like the, the Condor empire, um, seems to like be building up in like San Francisco basically, or, you know, that's been, that's underwater now, but you know, like it's like, it's almost like if San Francisco wanted to invade the Napa Valley, like that's the level of scale she's dealing with. And I feel like the cotton story is partly an example of that scale, right? That like, you know, we have these technologies, but the lived scale has been, you know, yeah, you know, kind of put back in time. I guess one of the other, I'm just going to pivot to other small things I liked. The, yeah, the sudden introduction of robots on page 179 is incredible. So good. Uh, it's so good. It's so, because like, there's been no indication of a massive super intelligent AI living on the planet at all. Like, they've talked about something called the exchange, which you understand the first time you read it, which I did, to be maybe telegraph stations or something, you know? And then on page 179, she says, it's important to understand the cache, to understand two different things I talked about, the city of mind and the city of man. And you're like, okay, what's, let's hear about their philosophy. Like, the city of mind is the super intelligent supercomputer that lives on the planet. And you're like, I'm sorry, <laughs> what? <laughs> it's yeah. incredible. Uh, partly just as a real ballsy choice to just <laughs> to just drop into the middle of your... Uh, and, and also it comes into, again, complexify, right? Like, you keep you start reading it out and you're thinking, okay, this is a you know, a primitive quote-unquote people, right? Like, wait, no, they've right. got a train. Okay, wait, they've got guns. Okay, and then, yeah, there's robots, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I do I think, I do think it's actually essential to the project, though, because, like, technology has continued to progress, right? Yeah. But the culture has not necessarily been, you know, uh, handcuffed to that progression, um, which I think is a really, like, vital idea of the whole story. Uh, and the, the different way the different civilizations use the exchange is, of course, one of the main ways of distinguishing them, right? Which is a philosophical point about whether they're looking at technological progress as an end in itself or just as like a thing that's occasionally worth checking out, right? Because right. they talk about how they do like they do occasionally somebody will be like, hey, I was in the exchange and I read about this cool thing. We could maybe use that, right? So they don't ignore it exactly. But oh, they're, yeah. they're not the, – the people that do are the condors who, when they're trying to take over all of California, uh, make an abortive attempt to build a tank and some airplanes. Washington's, they're not abortive. They work. They make a tank and some airplanes. But because they don't have the industrial 
society necessary to keep them fueled. Like, at one point, they spend a whole year gathering fuel, and it's enough to fly one of the airplanes for, like, three days, right? Or the tank, you know, is very scary, but it almost immediately falls down a hole and breaks, right? Right, Because they don't have roads. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, all these other things that were useful tools of war in, you know, 1950 or whatever aren't anymore now because the whole society just the whole the whole face of the globe both literally and like in terms of the way the societies work just doesn't work it's made them untenable yeah now part of me does think that these guys are going to be really in trouble if uh you know Genghis khan shows up and actually knows how to fight with the technology he's got right <laughs> but i don't think that ursula claylewood would disagree with that right that like a you know sufficiently no, motivated yeah. warlord could conquer these people pretty easily but i don't think she totally. disagrees with that um but the the problem with the condors well, there's a lot of problems with them, but, like, the tactical problem with them, right, is they are completely unable to live with the world as it is, right? So they can't, like, that's why they lose this war, right? Because they don't know how to organize their society to win a war in this, like, the world as it exists in 7,080 or whatever it is. Right. Um, which right. is, I think, a really interesting point, right? Because you might think, oh, he's got tanks. Of course he's going to beat these guys who have, like, mostly bows and arrows. But, well, no, you need a lot of other stuff to make a tank work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so those are a few, I could, I could do more and I might, but I'm going to pivot back to you and see what are some other things you really liked that were sort of small. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I did really like the city of mine. I just have to, (laughs) I have to love, I have to just say it again. Like she, at one point she really is out of nowhere. She's like, what if the internet was sentient? And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I was just reading about the someone like in bite, you know, ingesting dearness, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's so, it's so purposeful. It's like a jump cut of tone, you know? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we can say this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's really great with language. Yeah. But she's great with language in a lot of different directions, right? So she is funny at times that I think can be overlooked. So at one point, I think it's actually the editor personality, but again, it could just be Le Guin is being like walked through this, um, you know, ritual or interview and she asks for more information and she's told no. And then there's just, there's just one line that says I sulked and it's very yeah. funny. Like, it, like <laughs> she like delivers a punchline and generally speaking, I was surprised by how effective it was when she would be like, Hey, so this next section is told by a child. And like you would get to the section and she definitely had pared down the language and kind of made the, you know, the writing declarative and simple. Um, But of course it still sounds like her, you know, but honestly, like I I was kind of surprised at like how effective it is to have minimal stylistic effort married to like direct explicit instructions. You know what I mean? Like um, here's a bio life, here's a life story of a seven-year-old or whatever. And then the life story without that context, it would have read differently, but honestly telling someone this sounds different, I immediately picture a child in my head, right? Like I read it in a different voice because I've been told to, and I thought that was effective throughout the entire project. But in addition to that, she's, uh, <laughs> she's good with language in ways I didn't expect. <laughs> um, you know, so at one point she talks about venereal diseases, um, I think we might have to to bleep this. I think we have to, yes. <laughs> but I'm going to say it and make you believe it. I'm sorry. But she calls them, um, venereal diseases were mostly called f- sores or <laughs> foreigner's misery. <laughs> and what's, what's great is that F sores is hysterical right out the gate. And then foreigner's misery is still like so culturally intelligent and like, you know, it's like full of like bias and maybe racism, but also still kind of a joke. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And I just thought that was like a perfect distillation of her intelligence. Like here's something really funny and entertaining and also sort of like weirdly culturally rich all at the same time. Um, 
So yeah, I have a lot of other little things too, but truthfully, the, the book in some ways is this giant collection of little things that she uses to make an image of a culture she wishes existed. And so I don't know if I can like, you know, go through all of them without going down a giant rabbit hole. <laughs> One other thing I'm going to say pivots off of what you just said. Um, Foreigner's Misery, like they are, they are sort of xenophobic, like not exactly, but they're, they're sort of skeptical about the outside, you know, like they're, you know, and, and that's one of the ways in which it is a utopia, right? But right. they do still feel like real people, like some of her sort of, some of, some of the stuff she says. And whenever they kill an animal, they say a word of like, thanks, basically, right? But she says, but, I mean, so they do always say it, but like, it's just a thing you do, right? Like, a lot of the people don't know what it means, don't remember it, aren't thinking in any particular frame of mind, right? It's just a tradition, right? Like, bless you, right? We're not thinking about what that say, means. I just say, you sneeze, right? I say, God bless you, exactly. Right, and so she's she's very, like, it could be very woo to be like, oh, you know, whenever I kill a chicken, I say a little prayer of thanks. And like, that's not what they do, right? They do have a cultural right. tradition around saying something like, thanks. It's been shortened down to a little word, rue, I think. Um, but it's just, you know, the housewife in the, in the blood lodge butchering the uh, chickens <laughs> is not, like, really thinking about anything different. Right. right? She's just saying rue every time she cuts a chicken's head off, right? And that's not word for word, but that's close. Uh, and, and that's another way in which, like, they have all of these cultural practices, but she shows you the way people butt up against them, the way people don't always follow it correctly, you know, uh, in a way that does make it feel more like a real culture and less like a, like a role-playing splat book. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yep. it's got a little yep. more going on. Um, no, she really, she really does. She, she enfleshes the cultural practices, and and she does it all at like, every level. She continually does that. I think, um, like like the, there's a you know, and she does it through different forms. Like we've listed a bunch of the forms that are in this book. You know, biography, novel, poems, folklore. There's also a, a town hall meeting minutes, yeah. <laughs> which know? is really like good. She, it's really, it's actually one of the I think yeah, better parts in some ways. But she really doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't leave the formal experimentation alone ever. And I think it's part of what makes all this stuff feel real is that she explains these highfalutin or very naturalistic or very woo concepts, and then she follows it up with like, here, here they are arguing at City Hall, and you're like, oh, I've heard this argument in different language, and it sort of does enflesh the ideas that she's um, playing with. That actually, one of my favorite punchlines is from the City Hall meeting. They're trying to figure out what to do with the condors, right? Like, should we go to war or not? And again, to my earlier point, one reason they're worried about it is not just the conquest from the outside, but condor ideas about sort of, you know, being a warrior and being a man and being a right. warrior are starting to infect their society. There's a whole cult that's formed called the Warriors Society, and people are worried about it. Uh, so trying to figure out what we should do, and some people are saying we should go kill them, and some people are saying, no, we shouldn't. And some people who are very far away from the border, again, it's not a border, there aren't borders, right, but the, the territory, right, say, do not fight these sick people, cure them with human behavior, to which the other guy responds tersely, you come up north here and do that, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, right? yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> no, it is. It's perfect. One of my favorite sort of punchlines. There's actually a lot of punchlines in the book. The book is, I feel like we're always saying this, you know, this this really cool book is also very funny, but the book is frequently funny. It's not a comedy yeah. by any means, but no, no, no. It, is, it is frequently very funny. Like, they have a tradition of flighting, of, of rap battles, right? Uh, and some of that stuff is very funny. Um, people just talking crap about people from the other town and, you know, what they do. There's <laughs> no, a, it's there's, really, yeah, it's really good. There's a delicacy uh, that one, t there's nine towns, right? And there's a delicacy that one town eats it's sort of a paste but that same stuff is used in every other town as a shampoo <laughs> and so there's a throwaway <laughs> line right. which is uh he washes his he washes his hair with her dinner right is a is a is a line that means something <laughs> like there's no accounting for taste right <laughs> there's just a lot of good jokes um yeah I, I feel on the one hand kind of bad that we haven't dug into some of the specific cultural stuff but you're right we'd be here all day if we did that and it's hard to keep the whole book as a project 
in mind. Well, and I think getting into too much well, detail. I was gonna say I think actually because there's this like kaleidoscope of instances that you read about. Um, at one point in my notes, I, I compared it to almost the having the mesmeric quality we talked about with um, Stud Turkle's oral yeah. histories, you know. And what was hard about those is like those were also um, those oral histories were also an example of things I wanted to like keep specifically. But there's something about there's something about their nature that does kind of bubble up to generalities. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like at least on the first read of this book, she's so intentionally putting in you, uh, putting, you know, putting you into a, a mindset <laughs> of big ideas and what ifs and so forth. I think it's honestly, it's hard to get away from, you know, partly because too, there's a lot of repetition. Like as much yeah. as there's a lot of differentiation, she partly creates the um, realness of this culture, for lack of a better term, through repetition. You know, like we are hammered with the hyemas and the heya heya, and like the not only the language but um, the the controlling metaphors of this culture are repeated again and again through various folklore, through various poems, to the point that at some point, at sometimes like it was never, I was never like. Like, ah, stops, you know, I, I wasn't like mad about her, you know, talking for too long per se, but also like, I, I thought that was part of the success of the project is that you, you did hear things twice, three times, four times. And so I don't know. So I think also that also kind of puts you in a mindset of like, you know, um, abstracting to be honest, because it's themes. She's constantly hitting these themes that she wants you to take away. Even if you forget like the, you know, the nine houses or where coyote walks or what, like that stuff can kind of fade, but she wants you to remember the, you know, we'll call the vibes bill. If you will. Exactly. Um, I think the last sort of concrete thing I want to say is I think it would be if I was ever somehow teaching a science fiction class which case many things have gone wrong for me to be doing that (laughs) but I think I would pair this book with the other great post-apocalyptic 20th century science fiction novel A Canticle for Leibowitz um Partly because yeah. they're both really good books, and that's that's a good enough reason. But also because A Canticle for Leibowitz, which if you haven't read it, stop listening to this podcast and go read, go read A Canticle it. for Leibowitz but, uh, by Walter M. Miller Jr. But that posits a world where the bombs fall, and then society kind of rebuilds itself in a similar pattern, right? So you, you have three sections seeing sort of a Dark Ages, which is different because there's, you know, irradiated mutants and so on everywhere, right? But it still, right, right. in many ways, feels a lot like the Dark Ages, where the monasteries yeah. are a place to store up information until society's ready to get it again, right? Um, which is, of course, complicated if that's what actually happened, but it's at least a traditional understanding of medieval monasteries, right? Uh, and then you move to a second you know, world where you have science and religion fighting against each other, and then you have a third time frame where you know, we have flying cars and stuff again, but and the church is trying to figure out what its job is there, and then the bombs fall again, right, to spoil that book. But I'm not spoiling it. That's not why the book it works. So that's a vision of the future where there's a magic catastrophe and then society just does it all over again. Right. And the question is, what can we learn? You know, is society always determined to do this? Is it not right? Whereas here we have a world where whatever happened, that it's not quite clear what, you know, the bombs fell or there was some sort of global warming catastrophe or both. Right. But then the people that come around to do an entirely different thing, right. Uh, a thing which you could not have done before the bombs. Right. It's not just a reversion to tribal living. Right. Right. But it is also fundamentally different from the advanced societies quote-unquote that we had later and so i think that difference is, is part of why this book is fascinating because i haven't seen too many books do this i'm not saying it's no one's done them i'm not saying that um i think cloud atlas does it a little bit although i have not read cloud atlas because it sounds like the sort of book i would hate 
Uh, I, I don't know. You might love it, but it I might be know. great. I, I'm not actually expressing an opinion on Cloud Atlas, but also many of the most annoying people in the world love Cloud Atlas, which is a reason I have shied away from it. Which is is uh, you know it's a soft bigotry, is what it is, you know. Um. <laughs> or just like a really strong filter. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard know? to tell. I, I made a joke on Substack the other day about how I should hate Hamilton partly because everyone who loves Hamilton is incredibly annoying, but the problem is Hamilton's really good, and it makes me yep. sad. I would like to hate Hamilton. Oh, I've yeah. tried a couple times, and I just can't. Oh, yeah. uh, so anyway, um, my point is I at least have not read very many other books that do this where they don't. Like, I've read plenty of books and stories where you have a post-apocalyptic future, which is what if we were in the Middle Ages again, but with, you know, irradiated mutants and there were bombs places, right? You have Fallout, which is like, what if, particularly Fallout 3, where you have like, what if we sort of did the 50s again, except also we right. shot each other in the head with guns, right? Um, what, what strikes in the head with like laser guns, I mean. People were shooting each other in the head. With I was going to say, fifties love shooting people in the head. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but um, but I've not read a book which does it quite like this, and uh, I don't know. It's a cool book. I can't tell whether I'm going to study this book very carefully or whether I'm going to completely forget about it in a month. But I'm very glad I read it, uh, and it's worth your time. I do. I think that the project will will kind of the ambition of her project and the way in which she saw it through. I think no matter what, if I love it more in a month, or if, I agree with you, if it fades, I do think it will like her writerly ambition and the writerly accomplishment of this, whether or not it's her masterpiece. I think that will stay with me if that makes sense. Because yeah. um, it is definitely like it's not just because it's a long book; it's it's a formally ambitious book, and it's one that was only accomplished because she was having so much fun the entire time. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree. I think that I will either think more about this kind of, you know, naturalism that we've lost or whatever, or I'll be like, what was the word again for uh, for Coyote? And the, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> Coyote ate his own turds. What happened? Or her own turds. What happened in that book? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think it is. I find it. I don't know. I, I think it was just before the podcast. Um, initially, I said I might love this book, but I, I think I said it. I refined it and said, I think no matter what, this book does make me respect her even more. Um, as a writer and sort of a serious kind of, you know, um, producer of weird fiction, you know, not weird fiction, but you know, yeah, you know, ambitious. I don't fiction. think you can call this book weird fiction. I like to call oh, it yeah, weird yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah, it's one yeah, of my yeah, favorite yeah. things, but no, I don't think you can that, do yeah. that with this book. <laughs> yeah. No, um, so. All right. You, you got anything else, Bill? You want to go through real quick, or? Uh, I guess I have another very small thing. People are always throwing rocks at animals to like get them to go away, which is one repeatedly funny, and two, again, like they're not putting out pesticides, right? They're throwing rocks to get them it's to go true. away, which is. Another sort of uh, another way that they are different, um, but that's just a funny. You said something about coyote. People at one point, people are throwing rocks at coyote, or coyote is throwing rocks at other people on more than one occasion. <laughs> and it's, uh, anyway, that's very silly. But no, I don't think I have anything else significant. Um, it's a good book. I'm glad we read it. I I am too. Uh, as you say, I'm gonna. I, I already respected Le Guin a lot. The Left Hand of Darkness is incredible. Uh, mm -hmm. Earthsea is is Earthsea is head and shoulders above everything else that's trying to do that sort of thing. Um, but this is, you know, I, I, so I already thought she was a serious, incredible writer, but this confirmed it. You know what I mean? This was like, yep. yeah, yep. yeah, she's, exactly. uh, she's, she's definitely one of the major writers of the 20th century, uh, sci-fi or not, doesn't matter. Well, and I, and I told you, I think in the pre-podcast, you know, a little chat that I, I could see myself loving this book partly because I could easily see myself if I read this, had this life again, like teaching it. It's the kind of book that like would reward, I think, attention either at the level of study or at the level of teaching. And that's, I mean, that, that's enough to say, like, you know, job well done, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. I think that's all we got to say here. Um, we are not announcing what we're doing for our next podcast because we haven't quite decided yet, but we will let you all know on Twitter closer to it sometime in June. We may have another surprise project between now and then, but we never explain those in advance. That way, if they don't happen, <laughs> no one gets disappointed. That's right. Um, but uh, as always, thanks for listening. We really enjoy doing this. This is the start of our fifth season. Um, so we should have read N.K. Jemison's the fifth season this year if we've been oh, thinking. Oh, yeah, But yeah, we already yeah. did that. Oh, my gosh. We already did that, so we can't. Um, I guess we could, but that would be weird. Like, let's reread this book from three years ago. I'll reread the first book. You know? Yeah, no. Heard. I wouldn't reread the other two, I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm going to complain about this on the podcast and get canceled. So Esquire listed that as the greatest work of fantasy of all time. <laughs> and look, it's a good book. I don't want to say anything, particularly the first book, right? Really good yeah, book. Great yeah. work. You know, uh, good book. Uh, you know, if what did they say? One of the best works of fantasy of the last 20 years, I think that's certainly true, right? The greatest work of fantasy of all time. <laughs> Come yeah. on, man. Yeah. They just don't read fantasy. They that's just all don't. There is. Yeah, they just can't yeah. read it all. Yeah. And, you <laughs> yeah, know, that's probably true. I don't know. I mean, so Jemison on Twitter, like, retweeted it like, thanks, guys, which I think is probably what you have to do. But I, if you actually walked up to her and said, I think this is the greatest work of fantasy of all time, I just can't imagine she would respond with anything other than, I mean, Sure. Like, I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, you have to be polite, but I just can't believe she even thinks it's the greatest work of fantasy of all time. No. Well, it's, I mean, also, one that's not really, I feel like more and more, here's my cantankerous, even more pathetic kind of frustration. And the older I get, like, that doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't exist at all. Yeah. I mean, like, the, what a the, gibberish like, question. Yeah. Well, like, like, what's the best book of the 20th century? Like, sometimes I joke that it's Black Lemon Gray Falcon, because it is. But. Yeah. <laughs> But genuinely, like how like how am I supposed to pit Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, which is not not, not, not forget the, the nonfiction fiction division. How am I supposed to pit that book against uh, the Prime and Miss Jean Brody? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, it's it's like hey, let's compare this whale to a meerkat. Which one's a better animal? It's like I, that's not the that's not really a question. You know, it's not really a question that has at least a concrete quantitative answer. And I, I, I'm actually I'm actually in my world. I'm one of the people who, I don't mind lists. I think lists are just ways to like kind of grab readers' attention. You know, and whatever. I'm not as against them as most people are, but. I think that not only is it a crazy question, but I actually do think as an author, if someone was like, Joel, you, you, you've written the best, like, you know, slightly bloody, slightly funny, realist fiction <laughs> of the 21st century, it'd be like, I don't know, have you have you read Dennis Johnson? <laughs> like, <have> you, <laughs> I mean, have you read anyone else? Like, I mean, like, like that's just doesn't it doesn't make sense as a category of thinking to me anymore. Um, but also what's even worse than that is if you're going to engage the question, at least try to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> like at least be closer to accuracy. You know what I mean? Like the greatest fantasy novel of all time. Of course it's not. I mean, even the first book, which is good. Like actually I think the last like uh, fifth, I don't know, maybe less than that. Whenever they reveal the timeline stuff, it goes, it goes bad fast for me. Um, so yeah, sorry. But yeah, so if you don't ask the question, but if you ask it, at least get it partially correct. Well, it's just like the guy on Twitter a few months ago who said that J.K. Rowling was the greatest female author of all time and let's let's be charitable to him and say he meant British female author like <laughs> like yeah or no like that's wrong in every way she's not even the best-selling female British author like she's not even that do you know what I mean because right, Agatha right, Christie right. exists it's just like people say stuff like this and what I hear is I can't read and yeah. you know that's it's fine. Anyway, I'm Makes, being a yeah. real jerk. No, we're snobs. We're fine. It's fine. But at some point, snobbery is at some point snobbery. If it's a problem, it usually comes from a better place of like caring a lot. 
And I do think that like I, I some some of this stuff I don't care about because it's just idiots talking to each other. But at times when it bubbles up over into my world, it's hard not to get frustrated because it's like actually this stuff does matter to me, <laughs> you know. And you you have influence, and I feel like at some point I would like someone with better judgment to have more influence. Yeah. So what I'm really saying is, Esquire, you should hire me to write your lists. That's the takeaway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Be a real good fit for your paycheck. publication. Yeah. <laughs> Fritz Lieber, list eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I'd, I'd really right. give Michael Moorcock what's coming to him, though, with that kind of platform. Uh-oh. You know, Uh-oh, we're going public with that. It's good. No, I, I've, I've done it before. I went, I went to town know, on uh, the one Elric story. Anyway, we've gone way off base. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, for real, though, thanks for listening to our podcast. Uh, we've got some good stuff coming up this year, I think. I hope you've enjoyed this. And uh, Joel, as always, thanks for for talking to me and letting me go off on weird tangents about, you know, increasingly Fritz Leiber. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so thanks, man, and have a good day, all right? You too, man. Talk right. later. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.